to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember... Southern sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. Good afternoon and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Star Daily News up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, and my oh-so-frustrated co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, welcome back. Curtis? We're having a problem with Curtis coming in on the line here now. Curtis, are you with us? Curtis? I'm back now. All right. Can you hear me? All right. Yeah, I see you. I got. I'm seeing things popping up in the switchboard, so I don't know which one's you. I, all right. I, now I see your name there. But poor Curtis has been having a hard time today with his computer, and nothing's <laughs> going right today for you, Curtis, is it? <laughs> well, hopefully from this point what on, a- it will. I got locked out. I don't know why. It took forever to boot <laughs> back up. Uh, it's the trolls in your computer. It's the trolls. See, that's the thing. You said you didn't want to hear any more about the impeachment, and the trolls hit you. They said, Curtis, <laughs> that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> they gotcha. That is true. I just said, oh, well. Um, yeah. Well, we got, ourselves, uh, we got ourselves a lively show today. Um, a lot to talk about, a lot to do. Uh, we've got great guests. We're going to have um, the press secretary for the National RNC, uh, Blair Ellis. She'll be joining us at the beginning of the show. Uh, that's going to be then followed by Mark Sutherland. He is a film producer out of the U.K., but he is a great fan and patriot of these United States. He'll be talking about Brexit and uh, socialism and what projects he has in the works. Um We'll be talking to him on the second part. And then we have Daphne Barak. She's got a book out, To Plea or Not to Plea, the story of Rob, uh, Rick Gates and the Mueller investigation. Uh, she'll be joining us. And then we're going to close off the show with a challenger to Mitch McConnell for his U.S. Senate seat, C. Wesley Morgan. So a lot to talk about. I want to welcome everyone that's listening in and watching over on Facebook as well as here on Blog Talk Radio and SHR Media. Uh, chat room is open over on Facebook and uh, Blog Talk Radio. So welcome aboard, and we're ready to rock and roll, aren't we? I am. <laughs> Let's get the show on the road. All right. Um, everyone that listens to the show knows that we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Robert McKeithen of the Biloxi Police Department, Mississippi. His end of watch was Sunday, May 5th of this year. And this is from the Biloxi Miss, and it reads story posted May 6th, 12.06 p.m. Officer Robert McKeithen, a decorated 24-year Biloxi police officer who was gunned down on Sunday night in front of Lopez Cuave Public Safety Center, was remembered by the police chief, John Miller, as an unbelievably fine policeman. McKeithen, 58, 
a husband and father of four, who was planning to retire at the end of this year, had a style of his own, said Miller, who earlier in his career had responded to calls with McKeithen. He just seemed to connect with people. That is not always easy in our business. But he had a knack for connecting with folks and having them connect with him. Miller was somber as he spoke during a press conference in front of the Lopez Cuave Public Center. Just steps away from where McKeithen was fatally shot on Sunday, May 5th, shortly after 10 p.m. Miller said the Gulfport Police Department would lead the investigation into McKeithen's slaying, which Miller called a murder by an animal. Biloxi police officers were joined by officers from neighboring agencies in responding to the incident. By noon that day, $35,000 in rewards had been offered for help in the case, 20000 from the FBI, 10000 from the U.S. Marshal Service, and 5000 from Crime Stoppers. Miller and Gulfport Police Chief Leonard Papania did not discuss details of the shooting. Miller instead chose to speak about McKeithen. He did a great job. He took care of the citizens of Biloxi for almost 24 years, the Biloxi chief said. He was an Air Force veteran. During Katrina, Robert, with other officers, was awarded the Medal of Valor for saving four special need children. That was the kind of guy he was. It was a horrible, horrible event he had to go through, but he went through it anyway and they saved those children who undoubtedly would have perished. I tell you that because I want you to know the kind of man that he was, a fine and decent man, a great policeman, and he served the citizens of Biloxi well. Robert McKeithen was born in Jackson, Mississippi on March 22, 1961. He graduated from Santa Ana, California High School in 1979 and retired from the U.S. Air Force in July of 1995 as a technical sergeant at Kessler Air Force Base. In August 1995, he was hired by the Biloxi Police Department as a third-class patrol officer. He was promoted to second-class patrol officer in August of 1997 and to the rank of first-class patrol officer in August of 1998, added Miller. He was a wonderful family man. That's where he spent all of his time was with his family. He was a gentle man for a policeman. He was just very gentle, likable. He treated people with respect and dignity and were going to miss him sorely. McKeithen is survived by his wife, a daughter, two two stepsons, and a stepdaughter. He was planning to retire from the department later this year. This is dreadful, said Mayor Andrew Fufu Gillich, who on Sunday night was at the Lopez Cuave Public Safety Center in the wake of the shooting and consoled the McKeithen's family at Merritt Health in Biloxi. Officer McKeithen dedicated his life to this job and this community. This is a tragic reminder of the dangers that these men and women face in their chosen profession, which is to protect our community. From Greg Norman from Fox News, Biloxi police officer Robert McKeithen was the type of cop who acted kind of a like friend and father figure to the people involved in his cases. 
Major Christopher de Black told Fox News about one incident in the coastal Mississippi city when McKeithen was called to respond to the scene of a car accident on a bridge. After the site was cleaned up and one person was transported to a local hospital, he says, McKeithen visited that person to speak to them about their actions and what had happened. He took interest in them, the black said, noting McKeithen was concerned about those he came in contact with, regardless of whether they were a victim or a suspect. Even if he arrested you, the black added, he actually talked to you about your life. McKeithen, whom the black said, also says didn't try to shake off any calls. During his 24 years with the Biloxi Police Department, he was gunned down outside of this headquarters. The decorated officer and Air Force veteran had been planning to retire, but then police said a 19-year-old walked up to him and opened fire. Struck several times, McKeithen later died at a hospital. The suspect in his murder was caught following a frenzied manhunt, yet the motive for the attack remains unknown. Logan Grundle, McKeithen's stepson, says the concerned cop was living the dream as a police officer, one that he envisioned upon himself. He always talked about retiring, but it was always one of those things like one more year, one more year. Grundle said following McKeithen's death in a video posted to the department's Facebook page, he loved his job. He really never wanted to quit. One of McKeithen's career-defining moments came in 2005 when he and other officers earned the Medal of Valor for helping rescue young children from a flooded home during Hurricane Katrina. He kept it together. He kept my kids calm and distracted, Stacy King told the New Orleans Advocate this year about the man who came to the aid of her children. King said, as the floodwaters were rising, the group of officers led the children, ages 3 to 12, to higher ground. God bless those four officers to us that day. God sent those four officers, she added. I think heaven must have needed a police officer, and they chose the best. Pamela McKeithen, his wife, says her husband was very meticulous about his day-to-day preparations for work at the Biloxi Police Department. Besides his family, that was his life. He loved it, she said, like he took meticulous care of his uniforms. He would iron it every day and shine his boots. And even though the couple's birthdays were only a day apart, they agreed on a way to celebrate. We went out on my birthday and came back on his, Pamela said. At his funeral, Biloxi Police Chief John Miller said, the loves that he knew, the friendships that he made, the people that he helped, the lives he changed, the lives he saved, and the good times he had, those things can't be murdered or destroyed or erased. Miller added, they have already happened, they have already been done, and they will be a part of this world forever. Today's show is dedicated to Police Officer Robert McKeithen. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate to the brave men and women out there that have served in our military from the birth of this great nation through today 
and into its wonderful future. The men and women that volunteer and serve to protect our freedoms and liberties. We dedicate this show to all of them with this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Todd Allen Herndon. You can find that at ToddAllenShow.com. You know, I, I reached out to Todd. He said he wants to come back on the show, and I haven't followed up. I really do have to get him back on, Curtis. Um, My well, we Name is by Todd Allen Herndon is such a fantastic song. Love that man. Um, he's got a lovely family, too. Ah, Actually, he inspired me to get my uh, all-American red, white, and blue uh, cowboy boots. Because that's what he had. <laughs> uh, but I promise I will get him back on. Uh, well, we have so much to talk about. I want to thank again everyone for listening in here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, over on Facebook, YouTube, Facebook, oh, look, whatever. Just go to my mm. website and put it at <laughs> middlesouthern-defense.com. Um, there's so much news heating up, and I'm telling you, the Democrats have been shooting themselves in the foot. But what's even worse is that the media is starting to eat their own. This one reporter over at uh, ABC was digging up the story on Jeffrey Epstein, and the uh, ABC made her sit on the story. So consequently, it didn't get broken until much later. Now, the reporter that uh, did this got, you know, taped by Project Veritas, uh, talking to them about discussing that, you know, she had the story in Epstein three years earlier, and she was told to sit on it. So Project Veritas puts the video out there, and now there's this whole huge scandal. Now, allegedly, the person that leaked the video worked at ABC, went over to CBS, so ABC... The heads of ABC went and ferreted out who this individual allegedly was and found out that they went over to CBS, got a hold of the CBS heads, and said, fire that person. So this person who allegedly leaked the video was fired from their CBS job on the orders of ABC. But lo and behold, it gets even better. That's not who leaked the video. And uh, James O'Keefe over at Project Veritas said, that's not the individual who leaked the video. We know who leaked the video, and you fired the wrong person. Just imagine this, though. Competing news medias are telling them who to hire and who to fire and what stories to run with. You guys are supposed to be in competition, so we get the truth out there. We get the news out there. We get the true story. You're supposed to be news outlets. But instead, <laughs> they're probably whistleblowers. I thought whistleblowers were to be protected. Oh, that's within government. That's within government. <laughs> a whistleblower is a whistleblower. <laughs> now, think about it. The media is yeah. out there harping on, you know, the um, the person who supposedly is the whistleblower in this impeachment um, fraud. And, you know, they turn around and go after after a, a person supposedly is like a whistleblower, and they get them fired. It's hypocrisy. Uh, it, 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 it's just amazing. But the fact that ABC told CBS to fire one of their personnel, that the fact that ABC had influence over who CBS employed, just think about that. That's like CNN telling Fox News to fire Tucker Carlson, and then they fire Tucker Carlson. You're supposed to be competing. You're supposed to be fighting for the stories. You're supposed to be fighting for the ratings. You're supposed to be fighting to get it out there so the public is informed about what is going on. 
whether there is corruption or crime or maybe even something good happening. You know, feel-good stories are good, too. But no, instead of competing to get the news out there so the public is aware and knowledgeable, they said, no, we don't want this story. We're going to kill it because this person put the story out there. We want you to fire that person for doing their job. That's, that's the hypocrisy in the whole thing. But it's going to get even well, deeper. It's like most liberals. It's like like most liberal institutions, um, they come together to protect the agenda, even if that even if they have to work together, you know. You exactly. Know, I mean, they're competitors, but when they they have to preserve the agenda, they will work together, and I think that's what we witness in this situation. Well, it's going to get well, even better on the Epstein case because it's going to be breaking. They're going to find out just how deeply involved he was. And I'm getting an echo in my ear. Huh, I don't know where that came from. Anyway. Well, um, I keep waiting Jeffrey for Epstein. this IG report that they've been saying for the last five months that, that's going to be coming out any day now. Any day. Oh, well, we'll, we'll get to waiting. that later on. Uh, just um, what I mentioned on Jeffrey Epstein, because it's going to get deeper. They're going to find out just how many people were involved with him, whether or not it does go directly into the royal family and other well-known people. Uh, Shall we say Bubba Clinton? Uh, but Bubba. his brother is now saying that Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. Um, and that, uh, in fact, his life was taken because there were unexplained injuries on his wrists and shoulders at the time of his death. And Mark Epstein was on Fox News Wednesday night. He claimed the injuries had been discovered during his brother's autopsy. He also urged the Justice Department to publish all of the medical examiner files on his brother's case, including any microscopic slides and photos. And he said he plans to use the evidence to independently verify the cause of death. Now, the former chief medical examiner for Manhattan, Dr. Michael Bodden, had been on Fox News saying that he believes that Epstein had been strangled because there were three bones broken in the neck. And normally when you have a hanging, it's just the one hyoid bone. But in this case, it's highly, highly unusual. As a matter of fact, he had not known of any case, I believe he said, there, where there were three bones broken in a suicide. It's always indicative of a homicide. So this is going to heat up. I'm telling you, it's, and some very high celebrities, very high-named people, are going to find themselves in the pedophile spotlight. And but this is a big scandal. No one wants to talk about pedophilia. And yet we have a large segment of our community indoctrinating our children with the LBGT agenda as young as preschoolers, having children prepubescent going through transgender changes, having hormones uh, given to them to prevent puberty. What is with this? this I, I don't even know how to say this, this bastardization of our youth. They, they are killing our youth. Why can't we let kids be kids and grow up normally? This is not a normal way to raise our children in today's society. I mean, it's very frightening. It is. There's a lot of sick people out there. Um, 
And if you notice, a lot of them get into activities that involve children so they can be close to um, children. And we just have to be more vigilant in doing background checks and, and maybe psychological tests before any adult, you know, work work around children. Well, you know, what's even worse is that they have these drag queen story hours. And there was a picture that was going through the Internet of one of these drag queens sitting there with his legs wide open. And there's a young child sitting directly in front of him, and his entire package is exposed to this young child. This man should not have been in the same room as children, period. I don't care if you're dressed as a woman. You still got the equipment. You still got the DNA that says you're a man, you're a man. God made man and God made woman. And if you think I'm being homophobic or bigoted, I'm sorry. If that's how you think I, I am, I'm not. I have a friend well, who has gone through the service, and he is still a friend of mine. And he knows how I feel. He knows I love him, and I love his wife too. But, hey, this is your life choice. But don't force that choice on other people especially not on children that have not developed enough to understand it mentally or to tolerate it physically. That's such child abuse, plain and simple child abuse. Well, the video that I saw on Twitter one time, it had a, I don't know if it was a transvestite or just a simple cross uh, person who likes to cross-dress, but the the purpose I heard was to indoctrinate these kids into um, accepting different life, you know, styles, and and that's what it is. It's indoctrination, you know, at a young age, because these children in this classroom looked like they were like first or second graders, and you had this guy dressed up like a woman crawling around on the floor, you know, telling little stories or whatever. It's pathetic. It's not cute. It's not funny. And it's not, it should not be acceptable, period. You know, you have children that are being children. You know, when I was growing up, I had an older brother, and everything he did, I wanted to do. It does not mean I wanted to be a boy. I didn't understand that, hey, G.I. Joe was supposed to be for boys and Barbie was supposed to be girls. I, I <laughs> said, why? Why can't I play war? Why can't I shoot a bow and arrow like my brother does? Why can't I skateboard? You know, eventually my parents said, all right, let her be the tomboy. And I was 100% female. There was no doubt in my mind that I was a little girl. But I wanted to play at the same games that my brothers and his friends were playing at. I want to play tag football. I want to play softball or baseball. I want to try to shoot that. I suck at basketball. I'll tell you that. Even though I tried, I'm too short. <laughs> you know how short I am, Curtis. I'm just too short. <laughs> if I'm all get basket, I'm lucky. But, you know, kids will be kids. And as they grow up, they will find their slot in life naturally. There's no need to put an adult preference on that child. And that's the whole thing. We want that child to grow up in the image of ourselves. No, give that child freedom to learn who they are. And all you're supposed to be there is to guide them 
and to teach them and to give them a good moral background for their lives so they are productive and happy individuals as they become adults and let them decide what path. But simply because mommy thinks this is the new trend, uh, Danny isn't Danny, Danny is now Jenny. Mommy has decided that. So you have children as young as six being given hormones so they don't go into puberty, having going to a psychiatrist and telling them that, hey, you're a girl, you're not really a boy. So eventually that equipment that you've got between your legs is going to get cut off. You know, how does a child wrap their head around this? They don't. They're not mentally mm-hmm. capable of doing that. But we've got a segment of society that, that says this is normal. It's not. Why? Just let kids be kids. Let them grow up. You know, it started with these beauty pageants like John Benet Ramsey, where you have a little girl trying to act like an adult, and it just morphed into now this. Somewhere along the way, our society has got to say, you've got to put the brakes on. And a matter of fact, when we talked to our last guest, there is a gentleman that is putting legislation out. And um, I have it here somewhere. I put it out. So there is legislation going. I don't remember if it's the House or the Senate that will make it a felony if you attempt to have a child not an adult, but a child, undergo a sex change, a sex reassignment. And it's about time someone in government has recognized that this is a problem here. And I don't know what I did with that article. I've got about 100 different pieces of paper here. It's probably like the very last piece I touch my hands on. But there is someone that wants to make it a crime. Just bear... I know it's in here somewhere, but anyway, Curtis. But I think I'm glad someone finally has decided to do that. Yeah, about time. Yeah, no, I don't know what I did with this. Oh well, I'll find it. I'll find it probably about five minutes after we get off air. Hey, guess who I saw on? Guess who I saw on Fox News this morning? Oh, Burgess Owens. I, I, All right, next week. Ah, I, I hear this. Representative Jimmy Earhart, a Republican who represents Powder Springs, announced her oh, sponsorship okay. of the Vulnerable Child Protection Act by way of a press release on Wednesday. The bill will prohibit doctors from performing gender gender transition surgeries on minors or prescribing medications to aid them in transitioning. We're talking about children that can't get a tattoo or smoke a cigar or cigarette in the state of Georgia, but can be castrated and get sterilized. Good for her. Representative Jenny Earhart is putting up where it will be a felony to do transition procedures on minors. Someone's finally standing up for the kids. Good for her. Yeah. Absolutely. That time. And oh, and you were talking about um, the impeachment and Burgess, the whistleblowers yeah. and IT reports, and God oh. bless Eric Trump Jr. <laughs> I don't know if anyone saw the clips that are all over the TV, especially Fox News, about Eric Trump uh, going after the View. 
man. And yes, that Zoe awesome. Behar did say that she dressed up Halloween as a a proud black woman. And now that is that's not putting blackface on Curtis. If Joey Bearhart dressed as Halloween costume and she was a proud black woman, that's putting blackface on Joey Behar. You're a liar. You wore blackface. But anyway, Eric Trump put out in a tweet who the whistleblower was. And, you know, this, this name has been floating around the Internet for days on end. And Eric Trump says, well, why not? It's out there. Well, why doesn't someone just be honest enough to put the name out there? Eric Caramella, uh, he worked closely with Steele on doing the dossier. And let's see, um, he was part of an Obama administration email chain celebrating the eventual signing of a $1 billion U.S. loan guarantee to the Ukraine. That and other emails show Caramella interlaced with Ukraine with individuals who played key roles in facilitating the infamous anti-Trump dossier produced by Fusion GPS and reportedly financed by Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and the Democratic National Committee. One of those individuals, then Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Nuland, received updates on Ukraine issues from dossier author Christopher Steele, in addition to Nuland's direct role in the dossier controversy. So we have the whistleblower. We have the whistleblower. Na 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 na. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, so some of the stuff that name's been out really... there for a couple of days. I just haven't heard yeah. anybody say it publicly, but I've seen it in print. Mhm. And they all allude to the name, you know. I mean, the talk shows and stuff, but they never really came out and said it. But I did see it in print. <laughs> and Bill Meckler said, great commentary. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Matter of fact, Bill, we should get you back on the show. Oh, drop me a note and remind me. <laughs> but, oh, man, there's, there's so much, so much to talk about because, you know, um, you have the, the testimony going back and forth from Bill Taylor and all these other people under the Obama administration about whether or not there was quid pro quo and, and it, 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 not Obama, I mean the Trump administration, whether or not there was quid pro quo. And they they contradict themselves. And in some of their testimony, goes, it was supposed. It was supposed. No, no, no. Tell me what the fact is. What was actually written, what was actually stated. But they use inferences. So as if they're supposed to interpret what the actual thing was. Uh, because they got second or third or fourth hand information, but um, man, Adam shift shift shift. This is all. I'm going to beat shift. It's all opinion based. Uh, all opinion based. Uh, yeah. And um, that's that's all I'm hearing. Somebody's opinion of what the conversation was, and like like Trump said, read the transcript. It's there. It's out there for all to see, and there's no quid pro quo whatsoever. It, it's it's exactly a game of perception. And the media is just trying to twist the words around. And they're, they're interpreting what people are testifying about. Now, U.S. diplomat, former diplomat Bill Taylor, told impeachment investigators that the Ukraine did not know the U.S. had temporarily frozen aid at the time of the July 25th call. 
so they had no idea the aid had been frozen, making quid quo pro impossible, according to the transcripts that were released this past Wednesday. That's Taylor's right. October 20th deposition behind closed doors suggests that Trump did not threaten to withhold aid during the call between him and the, his counterpart, Zelensky. The July 25th is a week after the hold was put on the security assistance. And on July 25th, they had a conversation between the two presidents where it was not discussed. To your knowledge, uh, this is a question from John Radcliffe, Republican out of te- Texas, asking Taylor, he goes, to your knowledge, nobody in the Ukrainian government was aware of the hold. Taylor replied, that is correct. No quid pro quo. But yet, you hear about it all over the place, and they're still going on. Now, um, one of the members of the Intelligence Committee, a Republican, has stepped down, and they're placing Jim Jordan in his seat because Jim Jordan is going to be the pit bull. So this guy that was kind of, like, I guess, a little wishy-washy, not as strong as Jim Jordan, but the Republicans are now going to angle to get people like Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan into positions on these committees and get this investigation wide out, open into the public, where both Republicans and Democrats can equally question, equally subpoena, and equally call witnesses. Because right now, Schiff is not letting Republicans subpoena anyone, question anyone, or call any witnesses. He's saying, I'm king of the castle, and no one else can do anything without my say-so. On that alone, impeach Schiff. What say you, Curtis? I'm in agreement. Schiff got to go. <laughs> He's got to go. I mean, <laughs> this guy, you could just look at him on TV, and, and this, this, his expression looks really weird, you know? Like something ghoulish from some Halloween movie or something. Like like he plays the, the bad butler or something. <laughs> but he just looks kind of crazy. It's the same guy no, um, <laughs> who had the goods, you know. He knew, you know, for two years, you know, this collusion thing. He, he was going to really sock it to, you know, Trump and... It was nothing, you know. He was just making things up. Oh man! Well, we're gonna have um, right now. I had got a message from uh, the RNC uh, that our next guest has been in a meeting. Uh, hopefully, she'll be out really soon and calling in. So a lot is heating up uh, with this 2020 race because Bloomberg has thrown his hat into the ring. And I told my husband about a week and a half, two weeks ago, I said, watch, you're going to see two things happen within the next week. I said, Hillary Clinton's going to taunt us about running again, and Michael Bloomberg is going to throw his hat in the ring. And when Bloomberg announced last night, I stood at my husband and said, I told you so. I told you so. I was jumping up and down. And I said, I knew it. I knew Bloomberg was going to get in there because he's going to look at that field. And, of course, we're tearing the fields apart. I mean, there's no one strong enough to go up against Trump. And I told him the only person they got, and they're going to have to do it really soon before they lose any of these primary uh, 
primaries is they're going to have to go now. And I was right. And Bloomberg threw his hat in the ring because today was the last day for him to uh, apply. I think it's for is it Alabama uh, primary. Mm-hmm. So he's already got so his, his name in the ring. And I said, watch this. What's going to happen now? And I'm predicting this. Now, mark my words, Curtis. Mark this date, the 8th of November. Once Bloomberg gets enough, enough of a following on his campaign, Kelsey Gabbard's going to drop out, and he'll select her as his VP. If he does that, he's going to have a ticket that can compete against Pence and Trump. I'm telling you that. Watch Bloomberg pick Telsey Gabbard. And I do believe our guest is here in the line. Let's bring her onto the switchboard here. And good afternoon, Miss Blair Ellis. How are you today? I am great. Good afternoon to you, and thank you for letting me join you. Oh, did you hear my just prediction I just made? I had predicted uh, almost two weeks ago that Bloomberg was going to throw his hat in the ring. And I'm telling you, watch this. Telsey Gabbard is going to finally eventually drop out. He will take her as his running mate so he can compete against the Trump-Pence ticket. That's my prediction. Uh, well, I'm just impressed that you predicted he would jump in a couple of weeks ago. I think that I think everybody, uh, at least I was floored to see that there are still people jumping in the mix right now for the 2020 field. But I think that goes to show that there must not be much enthusiasm among Democrats for who's already out there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, having been a former New Yorker, living when Bloomberg was mayor of New York, um, I saw the way he did his political maneuverings, first as an independent, then as a Republican, then as a Democrat, and then possibly back to Republican, then back to Democrat. He is <laughs> a player. He is a player, and he's going to bring that thing that I was mayor of New York, and I have the business, and I have the uh, bureaucratic knowledge I can compete against Trump, who all he was was just a businessman. He's going to take that and use that as his platform. That's right. Um, And you're right. The question of is he even a Democrat? He switched from Democrat to Republican, Independent, Democrat again. And and I think that if there's one thing that we know, it's that voters see through uh, those kind of political ploys. They don't like somebody that's not that's not authentic and that's not a genuine person. I think that's one reason we've seen Trump do so well um, is that he is who he is and there is no kind of front with him. And I think that's the reason right now there are a lot of voters that are having to that are Democrats, at least that are having to really wrap their minds around this idea of Elizabeth. Warren being a contender, there are a lot of Democrats out there who just feel as though she's not authentic. So it's also funny when you get someone like Bloomberg in the mix who's kind of flipped and flopped uh, kind of half a dozen times. Um, it goes to show kind of the state of the Democrat Party and, and what disarray they're in right now. It, it is. It's a big disarray. But I'm, I'm saying he's going to take Kelsey Gabbard because with that, he has a woman, a black woman, on the ticket with him and to say, hey, listen. You know, you got a Jewish guy and you got a black female. Hey, what better ticket can you have? Right? You know, I'm I'm interested to see who people choose as their running mates and, and that's it's I feel like we're still so far off from that conversation. I know we're coming up on another debate in Atlanta in a couple of weeks and so interested to kind of see uh how that debate ends up shaking out. But I feel like we learn new things every single time there's a there's a Democrat debate. We see new kind of ridiculous pie in the sky proposals from party Democrats. We continue to hear more about kind of their leftist socialist ways, uh ways they're gonna to just totally tank our economy and, and run us into the ground. Um but but interested to kind of see who over the next few weeks starts having those types of conversations out loud in terms of running mates. Well, 
this past week was election on Tuesday, and I voted. My husband and I went out and voted. And everyone was saying, oh, Trump didn't have that much of an influence on the election. That's not exactly true, is it? You're spot on. Uh, We had an awesome election (laughs) night on Tuesday night. Republicans won uh, 12 of 13 statewide offices across this country. We were five of six statewide offices in Kentucky alone. Um, We saw Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who became the first African-American elected statewide, the first Republican to hold the office in over 70 years. Uh, And it's not just Kentucky. I mean, in Mississippi, we were able to get Tate Reeves as as the state's next governor. And New Jersey, we were able to flip a state Senate seat that's been held by Democrats. Democrats since 2008. So I think these are all indicative of the fact that there's a lot of momentum and there's a lot of enthusiasm out there for this president. And there's a lot of excitement about what Republican policies and principles are producing in terms of economic opportunity and and kind of mobility and and, and a way forward. And and thanks to this president and Chairwoman McDaniel, we continue to really break fundraising records and um, kind of pave the way for a successful November 2020. Blair. Yeah. Oh, go yeah. ahead, Curtis. This is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> hi. With Bloom, hi. With Bloomberg getting into the race, don't you think there would be like a rebellion amongst the AOCs on the Democrat <laughs> side because he's not um, progressive enough or socialist enough? Totally. And a lot totally. of um, Democrats would sit this one out. And what what would be the case if Eric Holder jumped in about now? You know, at this point, I don't know who's going to jump in next, but I think that I think you you raise a good point in the sense of uh, Bloomberg may siphon some votes away from somebody like Joe Biden, who is really trying his best to kind of uh, name himself as someone who's more moderate and more independent. Um, but I think we've seen what happens when you're when you kind of align yourself as a Joe Biden. You're not far enough left for for where the Democrat Party is nowadays, and as a result, we've seen his polling tank. Uh, there are a lot of people who put their eggs in the Joe Biden basket at the beginning of all this, and his, his numbers have really kind of plummeted over the course of the last couple of weeks, couple of months. And I think that there's something to be said for that, too, that there's just no place in the Democrat Party for, a, for someone who's middle of the road right now. And I think, to your point, that's what Bloomberg's trying to position himself as. And I'm not so sure that's going to be the successful ticket when you've got people like AOC and others in the socialist squad who um, we know where they stand in terms of liberalism, and it's, it's certainly not center. Well, you know, what I'm finding is, and I I had predicted this, the more they get into this impeachment, the more they're pushing people towards Trump. Because now you've got record numbers of people that that just want to see the madness stop. He's picking up with Latinos and blacks. He's even picking up Democrats. In a way, this is is helping him. No, absolutely. Um, just today, the president launched uh, the Black Voices for Trump coalition and, and launched the Latino coalition, the Women Coalition. I mean, this is somebody, this is a president who's, who's out there working for all Americans, and he's got the numbers and, and the economy on his side to prove it. I mean, we've seen uh, just today the president of the, the Black Voices for Trump launched. He was talking about how there's been 1.2 million new jobs created for African Americans since his election. Uh, the unemployment rate still stands for African Americans at a record low. Um, we've seen nearly unemployment reach record lows for almost every single demographic uh, across the board over the last couple of months under this president. It's, it's his leadership. It's the fact that he's somebody that came to D.C. with uh, with a to-do list that was a mile long, and by golly, if he hasn't stood by and, and started checking them all off one by one. Um, but I, I think it's a testament to the fact that he's somebody that delivers on his word, and he's making it uh, absolutely a priority. It continues to be a priority for us here, too, at the Republican Party to engage with as many communities of people across this country as we possibly can. 
Yeah, because it's amazing that um, 17 key states, he's increased his his uh, percentage by three points. Seventy percent of the people believe it's about politics. And, you know, you you have this Stop the Madness campaign that you've got new volunteers coming out of the woodwork. Um, That's right. Seven to ten percent of those attending the Trump campaign rallies have not voted in four or more past elections and 30 percent are self-declared democrats coming onto the trump train and this is we thought the tea party was something Uh, trump is just (laughs) an extension of what we started that's exactly right and and those numbers you cited are are astounding and it's great to hear um it's great when we have friends and allies and 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 people like yourself who are able to share them but absolutely i think since we've launched stop the madness at the end of september it's our big response to democrats kind of mindless impeachment charades and their political games are playing right now but we launched a website called stop the madness dot gop and since we launched it about six, eight weeks ago, uh, we've seen 75,000 new volunteers sign up to be volunteers just through that website alone. And so when people say all the time, look, well, how is impeachment playing out for the Republican Party? I say, I, I think it's working out okay for us because we're certainly seeing a groundswell of support when it comes to donors. We're seeing new engagement from volunteers. Uh, we're seeing people show up at rallies who either sat out the last several uh, elections or sat out the last several presidential cycles who want to get involved, who want Want to not just vote, uh, but get involved in their state party, get involved in helping to, to keep President Trump in office and other Republicans on the ballot. And I think that there's something to be said for that. There is a real momentum and a real sense of pride out there right now for what this president's accomplishing. Well, my next title I had up for you, I wrote it here, Jobs, Jobs, Jobs. It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> We're seeing a record economy. I mean, I've I, I had a business when Reagan was president, and I, I was glad because I thought Jimmy Carter, we could never have another president as bad as Jimmy Carter. And I had opened my business <laughs> under Carter. And when Reagan came in, I said, thank God we can breathe. And then we had the debacle of the last eight years, and I'm like, oh, my God. My husband and I actually closed a business in 2007. But when I oh, look gosh. at the economy today, and I, I see what is going on, I mean, Anyone that wants a job can get any job they want at this point in time. They're just so plentiful there. And it's all done under Trump and his policies. That's exactly right. We've seen some rockin' jobs numbers because of this president. Since he was elected, over 6.5 million have been created. Um, we have seen kind of a real boom in the manufacturing sector as well, 500,000 jobs since he, since he came to office. Um, and again, unemployment. Unemployment across the board right now is uh, is 3.5%. That's the lowest in 50 years. Uh, we've added 160,000 new jobs each month since he became president. I mean, these are all enormous numbers. And so when, when people start talking about what is what is it that we're hearing on the ground across this country, we're hearing about the enthusiasm for this president and the, and the policies that, that he's championed and, and just what he's been able to do for the American people because it's like nothing that, that people could have imagined. Absolutely. Yeah, because you're looking at not only job increase, but the hourly earnings have also increased, uh, raising up year over year a 3% gain. And that's, that, that's not peanuts. When you look at the end, you know, go, right. right, can I afford that loaf of bread or that bottle of medicine? Hey, every penny counts. It does. It does. And when Nancy Pelosi kind of turned her nose up this time last year on, on the tax reform cuts, 
Um, she said, you know, she made that infamous comment that, you know, number one, it was going to be like Armageddon where we passed, and that certainly was not how it worked out. But number two, uh, I think she tried to imply at times that, that that tax cut that was passed by this administration, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, really was, was, was amounting to a couple pennies saved for families, when in reality it was hundreds if not thousands of dollars. And maybe for a really rich, uh, out-of-touch liberal elite like Nancy Pelosi, who's from California, uh, maybe maybe a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks isn't much to her, but that goes a long way when it comes to saving money or paying off bills or putting money towards something like a vacation for your family. And so um, you're right. These, these numbers aren't pennies. These numbers aren't meaningless. And, and, and again, all kudos to this president for being someone who came in and wasn't afraid to challenge the status quo, wasn't afraid to shake things up. And by golly, if it isn't working out for the American people, just, uh, just swimmingly, much to, de- much to Democrats' chagrin. Well, you know, what it is is people are also fed up because right now we've got the impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. And then we say, let's build the wall, let's protect our borders. But instead of taking care of us, we now had this past week, we had nine dead Americans in Mexico. That that doesn't matter to anyone. No, no, no. We will give funding instead to Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria to help build their borders but ours just stay open, and Pelosi won't pass any legislation, whether it's health care, border security, budget, nothing is going through. That's right, and and um, I think this president has been someone to talk when we talk about him him really shaking things up with how things are done. He was not willing to just kick the can down the road when it came to immigration, and and again we saw him try and. and uh, touchstone immigration reform um, multiple times since he started serving in office. And it's unfortunately something that Democrats are just totally and completely unwilling to work with him on, which I find uh, horrific, uh, especially given the fact that national security and just border security generally should be something that everybody could agree on. Uh, It used used to be at least, um, but Nancy Pelosi has it in her mind that this is just not something she's willing to give an inch on. Um, But but that said, we've still got a president who's been able to make things happen. We've had 450 miles um, of border wall constructed that will be finished by the end of the year. And, and uh, we've got 167 miles under construction near the San Diego, El Centro, El Paso, Yuma area. So we've really seen some great progress made along our border wall, despite the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats have been totally unwilling to work with this president. Now, he's got rallies coming up. I think he he's going to be in Atlanta soon. He, you know, and I'm not sure yet which ones have been announced, um, but but I do know that he absolutely expects to be on the campaign trail over the course of the next uh, year. Uh, it's it's something that, that he really loves doing. There's no way to rile up the people quite like having the president out there front and center. Uh, and it's something I think that people really enjoy. American people like to be able to hear directly from their president, kind of unfiltered throughout the media. And so he is our biggest asset on the campaign trail, and we consider ourselves fortunate to have him. Oh, absolutely. Well, Blair, thank you so much for being with us. It's always fun to have someone from the RNC telling us what is going on, keeping us up to date. And I look forward to you guys being here every week until we get Trump back in the White House, take back the House, and even That's take right. back more seats in the Senate. We we got to do it. i got to tell you one thing, though, because uh, I've got one of the best GOP chairs in the state. Uh, we got Drew McKissick, and he's really kicked up South Carolina big time. He's gone so far where he has now someone that calls me representing my district asking if I needed anything. So I said, great. (laughs) Drew, I'm sending you a hug and a kiss. 
Uh, well, we you are, guys do a uh, fantastic job. Leadership. Well, thank you so much. We're grateful for his leadership, and we're, again, super appreciative of, of your ability to, to have a show and to allow us to kind of share our message and what it is that we're working hard to do. And ultimately, our goal is to uh, to keep the White House and flip that house back red and keep the Senate red. And uh, we're grateful for hosts like yourself that allow us to get out there and really speak the truth. God bless, Blair, for everything you do. Have a great day. All right, Blair Ellis, and we've got our next guest up in returning to the show. I'm waiting for my switchboard to muddle through, and welcome back to the show, Mark Sutherland. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? I am hanging in there, still suffering from having several teeth pulled, so sometimes I'm slipping up on my words, so just bear with me. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you're up ba- on the, back on the wrong side of the pond, but you were here just last week, and I'm sorry I didn't get to run into you. I really wanted to meet you. Well, that, that's very, very kind of you. I would have been delighted to meet you. Yes, it was a whistle-stop tour. Of um, I landed on the 9th of October. I started in Orange County, California, which uh, we need to keep California in all our prayers uh, for a number of different reasons, as you know, especially with all these fires. Um, and then I was in Atlanta, and then I went to uh, Ohio, and then I went to Nashville, and then I went to New York, um, seeing lots of friends along the way and having the privilege to speak and do some media, independent media bits. So that was great. Um, so, yeah, and I hope to be back very soon. It would be lovely to meet you. It would be lovely to come in your studio oh. and do it face-to-face. <laughs> it's a little cramped and Curtis will tell you that <laughs> but we do have it set up where two people can oh, use yeah. the mic uh, it is <laughs> it'd be too funny you'll laugh at yourself silly anyway no, but you know you mentioned California and you know that is really really sad because uh, I had been out there mm. back in the uh, late 70s and 80s and early 90s and it was just a beautiful beautiful state but unfortunately, progressive politics have just absolutely destroyed it. You've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got the uh, governorship, all um, are progressives. And the morass that they have in there is so bad that because of government regulation, the electric company couldn't do their upgrades, hence they got the fires. But they don't do mm. good stewardship with forestry. So the dead brush isn't getting cleaned out. They're not doing controlled burns as they used to do in the 60s and 70s. So now you have wildfires. Mm. And then open borders and sanctuary cities as, you know, crime just running rampant on the streets. And then homelessness that these people can't afford homes because they got taxed out of the homes. They don't have jobs because jobs have left. But they're Mm. homeless. Mm. And it's one thing after another after another of just complete failure. Well, it is, and and I think what is. I good evening, good evening, Curtis from the UK. Sorry, I do apologise for not saying hello. Um, it's, oh, it's so. That's fine. It, no, it's so. Um, it's so shocking um, because, as you know, that uh, California itself could actually sit at the G8 as its own nation, even though it's one of your states, but it could sit there as its own nation, and to find that that state with all its economic prowess and power is being reduced to this. I mean, this is where we go into the other realms of what people call conspiracy and think we're nuts and all the rest. We're not nuts. So I need to go. I want to go there because I feel very concerned about what's going on over there. And 
And as I say, we need to remember California and our prayers. This is a spiritual battle uh, majorly, majorly. That's what I believe is going on. So Agenda 21, Agenda 30, right? To uh, push mm-hmm. people off the land into, you know, massive sort of 400 square feet tower blocks per apartment and all this kind of thing. You look at what's been happening in China. We are not making any of this up. And I was listening to the wonderful uh, De- uh, Deborah Tavares, who is out there in California, who talks about 5G, who talks about, you know, chemtrails and all this. No, I'm not mad, right? I am not nuts. And on all these kind of issues, and, and Deborah does an incredible job, and there is reminding me that she attends all the, um, all the uh, fire, fire department meetings and all this kind of thing. And she raised all of that. She just said that in, in regard to the utility, not doing its job properly or it's been given money, but it's not then renewing all the cables and that that it has to do. Um, you're absolutely right where the, the uh, forest has not been deforested and put in fire lanes and all stuff like this where it should be. And the fact that people are living in utter fear and terror and Agenda 21 and 30 to get people off the land. And then um, listening to something else today, I think, no, it was her, actually, where um, she reminded everyone that it's all very well that saying that uh, uh, that the U.S. under President Trump, a man has pulled out the Paris Accord, not that, you know, the whole as an advisory it wasn't about any signing anything. But actually, individual cities, mayors within California have already signed up to um, and other places in America have already signed up to all those things. So Agenda 21 and Agenda 30 is being pushed forward. And the asymmetric attack against your constitution is unbelievable against your country and what is going on. And then you and I get called conspiracy theories, which we're not, because we can begin to back this up. When Herbert Walker Bush, you know, in 1992 says we need to create a new world order, you have the... um, uh, the Kyoto Kyoto uh, meeting and all this kind of thing. If you go back, if you go back to the to the Council of Rome, and you find out that the whole thing in regard to climate change is one big ruse to bring in socialism and control. When we have to remind ourselves that, um, you know, the Ocasio Cortez or the occasional vortex, as various people call her, um, is an absolute <laughs> actress. This whole thing of the Green Deal, this is pushing through, this is pushing through socialism. So in the end, within California, you're going to not have, um, you know, you're not then breaking down how you're actually going to heat your homes, feed yourselves and all the rest. It's all going to be wind farms and all this kind of thing. Then you're going to have electric cars um, that will not be working and all this kind of issue. This is about control. So the big experiment that's going on in California is what it is. And so then you go up to Montana in your wonderful nation, and I have some very, very close friends up there, and then you find out that 26,000 miles of roads have been shut down of access roads for the local population. Bureau of Land Management is going mental up there. And that the whole idea is to turn Montana into one big animal sanctuary. You and I then, I say it again, I say it again, get then called nuts but we're not and thank goodness you have shows that you have thank goodness that people like eg griffin and it's happening this weekend 
which is doing the Red Pill Expo. And E.G. Griffin, of course, wrote the book, The Creature of Jekyll Island, exposing the Federal Reserve, which is not federal. There are no reserves and it's not part of the of the American government whatsoever. It's a private bank. And Mm -hmm. we're not making any of this up. And when I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting very hot under the collar over it. But when I, <laughs> no, when no, I then discuss, when I then discuss some of these issues over here in the UK amongst individuals, except I'm just viewed as completely barky. Oh no, 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 it can't be like that. It's a bit <laughs> like, and we'll come onto it in, in regard to what's happening in the EU. You know. So, but if you notice it, they they try with doing one thing, one little thing, and they look to see whether or not we're going to push back. If we don't push back. Then we accept it as the new norm, and then they take the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step, right. until you right. have something right. that happens like California. Now, think back. to How did this all start originally? California was the breadbasket of the United States. Absolutely. All of our fruits Absolutely. and vegetables came from Absolutely. there. Now, if you look, the vast majority, when you go into the grocery store, are not locally grown. Most of them aren't even grown within the United States. They're from China. They're from South America, they're from Mexico, Guatemala, anywhere but inside the United States. And we accept this as the new norm. So first they shut down the field by saying, no, no, we got to protect the Delta smelt. So you send the farmers running. And Mm -hmm. then they say, all right, we're going to bring in businesses so we can put people back to work. And then you tax them and regulate them out so they flee for like Texas or South Carolina. And then you, yep. you make one move after another, and you're right, forcing people into urbanization. They, they call it sustainability. Oh, Listen tell me about it. Very tell me carefully, about it. folks. Yeah. The moment you yeah. hear sustainability, run screaming. And run yeah. screaming and, to your and local you, councilman and tell them you're a blooming idiot. Don't even try it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are, you know, a number of people like... Uh, as I say, Debbie Tavares being one, and another dear friends of mine over there who are pushing back. There's a friend of mine who uh, runs a website in uh, Montana, this west is our west, um, and all this kind of thing, and putting all these issues on there. And this is really, really important, and talking about uh, 5G and all these other things and, and, and health issues and vaccinations and everything. This is real. I mean, you, you know, California has passed a law saying, you know, unless you've, unless you've had all your vaccinations, then we're not going to educate you. People need to look at films like Vaxxed uh, 1 and 2 and the documentaries. We're not making, we are not, I am not making any of this up whatsoever. This is a total and utter global conspiracy. And and the thing is, and and this now, you know, segues in and leads in because... There is no coincidence that you are having these kinds of things going on on your side of the pond, and we are having these things going on on this side of the pond. And then we have to look at what's been happening in Canada. We have to look at what's been happening uh, in uh, in New Zealand in the last in the last day, where they're putting all the carbon tariffs in and all the rest. And uh, one big socialist pushed. This is a push for global governance. The fight is not between. Uh, left and right anymore the fight is between nationalism nationalism and globalism those people that actually believe in countries in nation states with borders that is what this fight is now going on and now they're so out in the open about it they really do not care so we have you know we have our equivalent of bernie sanders in jeremy corbyn over here who's a total marxist 
and we are one step away from having Marxists within within uh, number 10 Downing Street. We are a step away from that with the election that's coming on the 12th of December. And you have got um, this huge thing of where you've moved, uh, the opposition have moved from Russia, Russia. You know, let's just remind ourselves of a few things. The Mueller investigation, the man that took, that took um, uh, uranium one samples in his briefcase over to Moscow. You know, the, the uh, kickbacks that go back to the Clinton Foundation, care of uh, $145 million, uh, I think, were sold, or she gets a massive load of that, to the Clinton Foundation, selling your uranium. We're not making any of that up. You have minerals underneath, um, in, within, uh, within America, that are worth trillions and trillions of dollars that would easily uh, so solve uh, your debt issues. So we're not making any of this up. This is all that is going on within the elites, within the fact that these people are out of control. It is one big mafiosa. It really is. And it's all coming, converging all at once. And we have to be, um, as the Bible says, you know, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. We have to educate ourselves as fast as possible about what is going on. Because if we don't, it will be such a well, it's not going to be pleasant anyway, but it's going to be such a shock even more because we did not see any of this coming. And, um, you know, we're, I mean, we're still fighting to get out of the EU, you know, three and a half years later. It's all going on. And the big discussion is, is are we going to actually leave or is the EU going to go down? So it's not, the, sorry, I need to link again within, you know, within what's happening on your side of the pond. So we've had Russia, 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 it now moves to Ukraine and all this. And, uh, and then the, uh, the staged coup a few years ago, around about 2014-15. We are not lying about any of this. We really are not. And then the coup against your president, where 63 Amer million Americans voted to put President Trump into the White House. And now you, you've had this constant coup just before the end of 2015 and getting a dossier together. And I do apologize. It looks like the UK had quite a lot to do with that through Christopher Steele and all this kind of thing. You know, we then we have uh, Brennan then, uh, you know, CIA, and then we had uh, Hannigan, who was then running our GCHQ listening station, meeting at directorial level, as I've said publicly. They weren't having a cup of tea. They were passing files of information to each other. And I believe that in regard to about uh, Donald Trump as he was at the time. This conspiracy is worldwide, and it's not a conspiracy. It's true. And all I can urge is people to hurry up and wake up, smell the coffee, see what's going on, um, because it's not, uh, it may not bow very well at all. And uh, as we're finding out, you know, we've had 75% of our members of parliament do not, do not want us to leave the EU, and 25% do, and we still haven't left. We were supposed to leave, uh, Annie, on the 29th of March this year, gets put back to April the 12th, then it's got back to, it got pushed back to uh, October the 31st, that date has slipped. Halloween, you can't even make this, mm. make this nonsense up. And now it's got put back, pushed back to the 31st of January. And it's a waiting game, well, to be honest. Mark, not a lot of people, not a lot of people know exactly what Brexit is. 
so I did I did a lot of my homework last night, and I got to admit, on June 24th of 2016, my husband and I mm. stayed glued to the TV and the computers, mm. watching the count. And God bless, mm. we miss Kel because you know she's the one that got us into understanding what was going on. And I remember back in the 70s when you guys voted to go into the EU, and I remember thinking to myself, what a dumb thing. I, I, we, didn't I, vote, actually, we didn't vote actually to go into the EU. We were taken in. <laughs> I'll just clarify I, I, that. I, I Sorry. I just couldn't understand why you would want to join. And everyone said, oh, it's mm. just to make trade easier. That's the original mm. supposition, so that you can travel easier, you can go to a job easier, uh, mm. you can visit easier. It was just to ease any restrictions so you didn't have to always ha- present a visa, passport, and 15 different other documents mm. to show why you were going. I owned a mm. travel well, agency back then. I know what documents that you needed because we had to process them through the embassies so we could have our right. people go over and visit. So I know mm. the restrictions. Mm. So I can understand it. But that's not what happened. Instead, no. Mark, it no. grew into a monster. Mm. Well, that's what it was always designed. It was always designed. I mean, this is where it starts to get very, very complicated in one sense. It starts to become into conspiratorial. Um, so let's just throw a few bombs out. As far as I'm concerned, the president of the EU is, is, is the Fourth Reich, right? It's a bureaucratic oligarchy. And it's based on it's based on uh, Nazism and what they were then setting up. And when they said, sadly, uh, Hitler would invade one country after another and absorb and take over. But give give the impression that uh, and then set up and then all that money was then paid back to a central body that that's exactly like the EU. Now, whether we have certain time now to go through certain history that I've been looking at of late. But in 19, and I apologize for rudely interrupting earlier, but in 1973, when we went in, we were taken in. It was a small paragraph in then uh, Prime Minister Ted Heath's um, uh, manifesto in regard to uh, saying if I win the um, if I win the election, I think in 1972, then I will take us in to the uh, common market. And you're right; it was then seen as the common market where we could trade with uh, six other five or six other countries with low tariff barriers. You know a lot about tariff barriers in your country, where um, you would make money by by uh, having goods go from one state to another, and that is where tariffs were then charged. Now, the whole idea was, yeah, it's about trade, making trade diff- diff- um, easier. No, 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 no. It has always been about economic and political union. And you could ar- argue that the foundations of that were 1923 under people like Jean Monnet and Arthur Salter. Arthur Salter was a British uh, civil servant, Monet, uh, I think, Belgium. And uh, they had visions for the federal states of Europe to give you a clue the European flag with its gold stars around is based on the uh, on the Betsy Ross flag. That's what it is based upon. So it's a federal state of Europe, but with two things missing. One, uh, as your constitution was uh, in print um, as a fixed document in 1787, your uh, First Amendment right in regard to free speech to be backed up by a Second Amendment. You have a right to bear arms against a tyrannical government. We could even... Uh, even though there is technically an EU constitution of the Lisbon Agreement around about 2009, um, which was supposed to be seen as a a treaty, which the French and the Dutch um, 
rejected in 2005. It then comes back to be a, const- a, uh, a, a treaty. But we don't have, in many ways, you could say that free speech and defending that is not within within the realms of that. The other key thing to say about the EU within the Lisbon Agreement, there's no respect of the Reformation, there's no respect or understanding of the Christian heritage of of Europe. That's not built in there at all. God is thrown out. Um, but it's okay for Juncker then, before he stepped, you know, as he was uh, head of the European Union, then um, to unveil uh, statues of Karl Marx a couple of years ago by a statue made in China in Marx's uh, hometown. I'm not making any of that up. So the EU Mark. now is. Sorry, sorry. Go, Curtis. Go. Uh, I was just going to ask um, isn't the European Union, wasn't that just a, uh, another attempt to. Um, get rid of borders uh, and nationalities so, um, you know, to satisfy, you know, the attempts by the globalists to create a a new world order? Don't you think that's really what's at at heart here? Absolutely, Curtis. It's a leg of global governments. It's a leg of global governments. That is what it is. And what's very, very sad is that those people that voted to remain on the 23rd of June 2016, um, they they believe that the EU that they thought they had then is the EU what what they have now. As the EU turns and turns more and more tyrannical, um, yes, it's a leg of global governments. And I'll throw this out as well: the euro, the euro. One of the benefits of the globalists of having the euro. Um, it's not good for the countries that have joined because you then have this sort of polarity. How could you have a Greece um, economy on a polarity with the German economy? You can't. You cannot. They are profoundly two different cultures and profoundly different. And the euro has then meant it's been able to create political chaos. And as it causes political chaos, that more and more countries then turn around and go, oh, we'll just give up more and more of our freedom step by step. Curtis, you're absolutely right. The common market that became the um, the uh, European Economic Community then became the EU, the European Union. It was always about monetary and political union from day one, but that was hidden. That's a hidden secret. It's a bit like the other hidden secret um, in a wonderful book by Batyor about um, Europe and Arabia and the whole thing of absorbing a number of countries in regard to free movement of the Middle East into Europe. Um, There's a book that I've just recently got, and I'm trying to uh, avidly read it. And you go back to the Barcelona Agreement of 1997 and the conference there. And it's this whole thing of free movement. Absolutely right, Curtis. You are absolutely right. And when we talk about those issues, then we're seen as a bunch of uh, racist, thick bigots, which we certainly aren't. And um, national borders are there for a reason and you know as i i turn around and go i don't have a problem with immigration as long as we have controls on that we need to know who is coming into our country and who is not you have the same issues on uh, the border border down there down south and the fact that you don't know who's coming into your country if they're crossing the rio grande and all this kind of thing and it's illegal and of course the democrats uh, love all that because some of these people end up voting with them so we we have um, we have a huge a huge issue, and 
I'll give a I'll give a spiritual another spiritual point on this. Um, multiculturalism is undermining, in my opinion, what God did at the Tower of Babel. So, as Nimrod is then going, I'm going to build a tower. I'm going to go up, and I'm going to kill God. Now, Old Testament talks about that. So then God says, right, divide nations, divide people into having different languages, and then they go all in their different directions. Um, that is what happened. Now, multiculturalism reverses that. It reverses that in turning around and saying that there is no nation state. We have all nations within all our capital and all this kind of thing. There's no respect for borders. And of course, our man uh, Soros is doing what he can on your side of the pond to cause the chaos. He's done. He's doing whatever he can over here to cause this chaos as well. Because when we are at a very, very cru crucial stage as a, as a country, because if we don't leave, if we actually don't leave the EU, then as far as I'm concerned, my country is done. We are a democracy. You are a, const a constitutional uh, republic Re with republic. an electoral college yes. for a reason. Yeah, republic. You Sorry, you are a republic with an electoral college for a reason, um, which you found out in 2016, and you'll definitely need it in 2020. While the Democrats yep. are going, let's get rid of these things. Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of that. I mean, I've never heard so much nonsense. So over here, our democracy, 17,410,742 people with a majority of over a million voted out. That was a democratic decision. It was the highest political turnout in history of any vote um, in recent times, if ever. 70% of the electorate, 72% of the electorate came out to vote. At the moment, our parliament has done whatever it can to obstigate on that and to stop it happening. And if it doesn't happen, democracy is done in this country. In 2017, just quickly, there was another election uh, which Theresa May just won. And in that election, every single party, bar the Liberal Party, said, we will respect the vote. We will respect the vote and we will put through the democratic mandate that we have been given. They have not respected that vote. Just as a reminder, when Theresa May, or treasonous May as some of us call her, said 136 times that, you know, we'll be leaving, Brexit means Brexit, and we're leaving and all this. No, they have conspired, and Curtis, you're right, they have conspired in which to stop that doing. Bostad, that wonderful uh, parliamentarian within the EU, and I'm being slightly sarcastic, on a BBC documentary, he turned around and said, well, we're, I've got the e UK where I wanted them, which is to be basically a, con a Connolly of, um, of Europe. Sorry, I can't even pronounce it properly. So it's, um, this is all that is going on. We are, you have, you've got this attempted coup on your side of the pond, um, and with all the, uh, you know, the alphabet soup agencies all being united against uh, the president and all this kind of thing and spies within the White House and all that. And now you've got Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine and the, uh, you know, the Democrats having a server outside the jurisdiction of America in the Ukraine. People can go and serve that. But so it's that we over here have got this uh, total attack on our on our democracy where we have a Brexit country. And we have a Remainer Parliament, and we are at a con we've been at a constitutional crisis over the last uh, three and a half years. And as a wonderful historian, David Starkey, who's over here, reminded me recently, excuse me, in an interview 
where he just said, this is our second Brexit. The first Brexit was uh, under Henry VIII when we left the court of Rome. Doesn't that sound familiar? Um, and th the way things are repeating themselves. We have not, Curtis, you've said this absolutely right, we have not been running our own country properly since 1973. And, Annie, you're absolutely right when you turn around and say, you know, why did you vote to go in? Absolutely. We went in. We immediately lost our fishing rights and our waters. We immediately lost control of those. Absolutely. Um, and uh, as a food source. And then people wondered why we then had cod wars. And we, um, after, in 1955, we had a little uh, fracas with you. It was called Suez, and uh, Eisenhower didn't particularly like the fact that we didn't warn, warn you that we were going to go in. And um, we lost, we had to come out that, uh, having an ignominious retreat. And the then uh, sort of Foreign Secretary Ted Heath with Harold Macmillan then looked towards, instead of looking towards America, started to look towards Europe as a future. And um, even though Ted Heath is saying that he's a member of a conservative and being a conservative MP, in many ways he, he was not. He was extremely wet, extremely, extremely liberal, right? So uh, he then uh, took us in but in 73. But in 1961, we were turned down. And the then Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill, turned around and said that if we join, it will be the end of a thousand years of history, referring back to Magna Carta, etc. Now, just quickly, in 1968, we were then turned down again. In 73, we joined. And this goes back to your earlier comment, Annie, of why would we do that? And the reason why we kept being stalled is because de Gaulle had to put in what was called the common agricultural policy, which was basically um, bailing out French par farmers. It was subsidies for French farmers all the time. So we had to secure his voting base. And then eventually we went in and Ted Heath then promised that we would pay 12% of the common agricultural policy. I couldn't even tell you how many millions of pounds that was. And then after a short period of time, after 18 months, it'd go up to something like 18%. None of this was explained to the British people. And there's a wonderful book called uh, The History of Europe and the Great Deception. It is a total and utter deception, absolute deception. And some of that recent deception, even more so, where in 2015, we had the then um, Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, or just before then going, oh, the EU is not doesn't want its own army. Of course, it doesn't want its own army. Of course, it's announced it's got its own army. Now, um, all of these things are being kept, kept back and kept hidden. And when for some of us, we start reading things and educating ourselves, we then get rather, rather criticized for that on a regular basis. Um, and it does get more, Curtis, it gets more um, sort of conspiratorial. Because one of the big issues is this is that after the uh, Second World War and a wonderful book called uh, Step by Step to Global Ty Tyranny by William Jasper makes this very, very clear, that the economic uh, regeneration plan um, of, of Europe, um, the European regeneration plan, uh, the Marshall Plan, um, was actually the infamous Jean Monnet's plan. And that Marshall sold sold uh, the regeneration of Europe and America funding that, sold it to Congress by turning around and saying that if we don't fund this, then it'll be the spread of communism. Now, there is a long history here 
in regard to uh, Mr. Monet, who uh, various articles and books, um, there was a book uh, that had come out in France in the last couple of years referring to the fact that they reckoned that he was an OSS asset, uh, which was pre-CIA CIA and all this kind of thing. And when you start going down this particular rabbit trail, it becomes very, very uncomfortable because we see it in regard to the global elites. We see that... Um, uh, that General General uh, Patton at that time was asked to denazify uh, Germany, and um, then realizing that turning around and going, well, hold on a minute, no, I need certain thing, people in power, and I'll come on to this and qualify this in a minute, to resist the spread of communism. We then go back to the Nuremberg trials, and we see we see the fact that quite rightly a number of Nazis were put on trial there. But soon after that, in regard to once that was pushed out the way, uh, not pushed out the way, but those trials were done, you then see the fact that uh, various uh, um, industrialists were then put on trial from, from who had company links with a big uh, cartel called IG Fairbairn. And IG Fairbairn was the power base that powered the, uh, the military might of Hitler. Now, you then see the fact that a central bank was started um, in uh, the Basel, Switzerland, um, just before, I think, 1930s. And um, this became the central banks of central banks. And um, that was all then lined up because what would happen, IG Fairbairn, which was a conglomerate of putting Bayer, company of Bayer, Agfa, um, Host, um, there's a wonderful book called Hell's Cartel, which uh, lays out some of this. And then you have another brilliant book by Zeta Cohen, which is called The Nazi History of Europe. I'm not making any of this up. This is extremely uncomfortable no. to read some of this uh, because it's well, not actually, a Well, actually, I've got to tell you, because a lot, of what, a lot of what you were saying, we had a previous guest a few weeks back who wrote the book, Hidden right. Nazi. So uh, ah, our, our government, the British, the Russians, the Americans, we were all vying for these brain trusts, not just the brain trusts, but the hidden assets, the, the treasures that they hid. A lot of money got squirreled away. Most of it ended up in South America and the Caribbean, but it did get scattered. So the Russians, was, Moscow was fighting for certain scientists and certain industrialists. Absolutely. You guys were Absolutely. in England. We were. So there was a hidden a bunch of stuff that got hidden after mm. World War Two that the public doesn't mm. know about. Yeah. And, yeah. and these yeah. individuals ended up being the core of a lot of what you are now going through. And when you say Nazis, it makes so much sense when you look at what has been left behind and the fact that your very laws have been usurped, your very regulations your very national security has been usurped by this European Union. And when they say mm. one world economy, the global market, you know, it's to take away our national identity. And why? Because England and the United States can fund because we have such power and assets. We can fund whatever their little hearts want. And their little hearts want more and more power. And they're going to get it by being bloodsuckers off of us absolutely and when we go through the history when you go through the history and of course you know this kind of stuff over here as a conversation isn't something that's regularly happening as far as i'm concerned it isn't regularly happening even though boris johnson a couple of years ago uh, in a telegraph article referred to to this 
And, um, you know, when you look back and you realize that terrible things that happened in outfits where IG Fairbairn put their own factory in there, you look at, sadly, the amount of uh, slaves that various companies had um, that are of, of the Jews, etc. You look at the fact that when uh, when uh, a number of, you know, the five million Jews that go into these concentration camps, Cyclone B is actually created by IG Fairbairn. You know, this massive cartel, the cartel was put together because they believed that if this little man with a with a loud, shouty voice and a black moustache then conquered the world, then they would have the cartel on 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 uh, pharmaceuticals, etc. Industrialism across the world. That's why they then uh, supported him and got behind that. And um, it's always been Annie, it's always been this debate. I mean, within Nazis communism so nazi national socialist workers party communism communism makes it very plain that the that the uh, that the means of production are owned by government what's hidden within nazism national socialism they then allude to the fact that there are these private companies that are running everything like we've said like with bayer host etc and um agfa and then getting together and and creating this cartel but all the member or a number of the people that were running these companies were, of course, members of the Nazi party. And we have to go through this history. So the uh, we look at that a number of these people left the Nuremberg trials, were given uh, sentences of a couple of months and all this kind of thing, and, and then would find themselves going back to some of these companies to run them, a bit like uh, they then go back to Daimler-Benz and, and Mercedes-Benz and all this. And there are a long list, and I just can't think of any more right now, but Zeta Cohen's book uh, lays, lays all this out. And it is up to us to educate ourselves and i don't apologize about this we come back you know as a bible believing christian we are in a big spiritual battle ephesians 6 talks about this and this is all laid out these are the principalities and powers they might be in they might have changed and morphed into a different shape but that is what is actually going on and people do not realize this one iota um you then you then look at what happened in the French Revolution. The French Revolution was attack on, as far as I'm concerned, was attack on Christianity, attack on God, bringing in an atheistic, humanistic construct. At the centre of the European Union is that thinking, an atheistic, humanistic construct. And we had already fought as a nation in the Battle of Waterloo and the Napoleonic Wars. We'd already fought this. We'd already fought. Napoleon. We are an island nation. And then we found ourselves being taken in to the EU. But you are absolutely right. And I'm very grateful that you back up what I've well, said. I think in well, many I might even have that book. I might even have that book. Yeah, well, you know. it's funny because you mentioned the French Revolution. But where did the mm. idea of communism start to come from? But from the French Revolution, That's where right. Karl Marx studied that and said, oh, this is a great model. Let's build communism around it. The French mm. already thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> and everything yeah. just turns back around. I told you I did my homework Absolutely. last night. <laughs> no, no, and I'm really glad you did. And I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little tip on this. Very interesting because you, you said it. We went into the EU in 1973. In 1967, 68, uh, Harold Wilson, our then Prime Minister, set up 
a, a committee to look at um, the decimalization of our coinage, of bringing our coinage into line with European coinage. That is what this committee was set up to do. And that was in 1968. We then became a decimalized country in 1971. And then we joined the, um, the uh, common market in 1973. Do not tell me that that is not conspiracy. Do not tell me that that was not planned. Because it was. And it's quite a shock when you see that the coinage was prepared for when we went in in 1973. And we used to have wonderful coinage. And the, key, the other key thing is that our legal systems... Our legal system, very, very different, even though we've been under the uh, European uh, law since 1973 and, and with a major kick, major kick from 1992 when a load of legislation comes in. Um, our systems are profoundly, profoundly different. We have a lot of common law. I mean, this whole thing of do we have a constitution, 1688, 1689 and all this, we have a lot of common law regard um so yeah it's it's complex danny to say the least well i want to i want to tease your mind a little bit because uh i'm trying to remember the exact years but at, in the 70s they attempted the united mm. states to switch to metric measurements we were supposed to go uh, all yeah. european with all of our measurements and everything uh mm -hmm. Thankfully, the Americans are stubborn cusses, and it never quite worked. Mm. But if you ever work on a car or any sort of equipment, you have to have both uh, SAE as well as American <laughs> measurements. So, you know, they still are trying to swing it in. But they wanted us to also be part of this global economy as early as the late 60s, say, hey, listen, this is how the Europeans do it. Let's use European time. Let's use European measurements. Let's switch over so we're more compatible. And it, as they said, it was to make trade easier and to make mm. parts for like cars and other appliances interchangeable so we get lower cost goods is how they explained it to us back then. But it was another push mm. to try to get us to join the one world economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why that's why in the past, you know, um, I think it was Khrushchev who said that, you know, we're not going to be able to take on uh, America uh, individually and all this kind of thing. But but we will usurp it from inside out in regard to communism and socialist thinking. You can see what is going on now where you've got many, many millennials who are going, oh, we love socialism. I mean, there's someone politically, for me, you know, my walk has been, I moved from the sort of left over, and then we all get called, you know, alt-right and far-right and all this. I don't think anyone, any of these people know what it really means. Um, you know, we just want separate countries. We respect that. And any country that is not in charge of its own borders, its own laws, its own language and its own money supply is not a country anymore. And that is what is happening within the European Union. I suppose what I'm trying to say within having the privilege of being able to talk to you guys for an hour is that the fight that is going on both sides of the pond is not a coincidence, is not a coincidence at all. This is this is real. And um, I was upset where I met um, a dear friend, uh, Julie, over there 
um, met up. She'd written a history book on America, which is brilliant. And she was talking about the fact that she'd been involved, tried to get involved in local politics, went to various Republican uh, committees or whatever, found out that uh, half these people do not really want to put the Constitution first, are fully aware of Agenda 21, Agenda 30, and the usurping of the Constitution of the United States. This is deeply, deeply worrying. When JFK gave that speech saying, you know, we're not a, we're not a country of monolithic secret societies, um, well, there's a load of that going on, corporocracy and all this kind <laughs> of thing. Um, this is, you know, and then deciding that he actually wants to try and print dollars outside the Federal, the Federal Reserve and then the rest is history. The fact that, you know, you've come off the silver standard, the gold standard, uh, we've had quantitative easing, one, two, three, four, five, six, infinitum. It's all going on. This printing of money, your dollar that was worth um, what it, you know, is worth what it was pre nine, just before 1913, before the Federal Reserve, I think is only worth about one cent of that now. You know, this is serious. This is why we need to educate ourselves. And you do. You have this brilliant show that is educating people. <laughs> And I don't know about you, well, you know, but I get I get I get exhilarated by the knowledge personally. Well, you know, you, you're talking about the currency. You also throw into that Bitcoin. If if that's oh, not yeah. one way to push people into a, a global one bank, it would be the Bitcoin. And I, I tried understanding it when it first came out, but then when you look at who is involved, which individuals started this whole thing up. It really does explain a lot because one is from the Middle East, one is from Moscow, and one is an American. Hello, <laughs> there's I a know. little triangle I know. here. I know, I know, and everyone's I know. pushing I know. you into it. Why does everyone now? How many people carry coins around with them now? You use a card, a little chip card, and not even that anymore. It comes off your smart device. So you, if, mm. if they take us out of relying on actual currency, trading value for value, then they've won. Well, they have, and that's why if you've got any spare cash, we need to be uh, having gold and silver. And some, I think Bill Holt, uh, Holt has advised that you need to get hold of junk silver in the, in the United States, get a bag of it, or have uh, maybe $3,000 worth per person in your household. We're not making any of this up. We need to look at what is going on. This, the globalists are trying to bring your country down, which has been, America has been the greatest experiment in people running their own country and their own affairs. You know, um, we over here, and they do not understand your system. And then when I go over and I have the privilege to travel around and meet people on the ground, I then have the privilege to begin to understand the freedom concept of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what that means. And, of course, as we've discussed in California and elsewhere, there is this whole thing of wanting to restrict people. I mean, if you, if you didn't have the Electoral College, you would have California, Washington, and New York deciding who is going to be your president for, the, for infinitum until Jesus returns. You know, I mean, this is the whole issue. Um, but people have got to educate themselves. So many people in the States... Uh, I haven't been around them, but I know of them who uh, who call themselves liberal progressives uh, or I've been around one or two. I've then had to keep my mouth shut. Um, who then <laughs> who who then just turn around and go, well, 
you know, what about the Constitution? It's a living document. And the only time it was living is when it was part of a tree and then it became paper and it's a fixed document. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't make, I can't, I don't understand, I don't understand this except to say that it has to be a spiritual delusion that people would want to just wreck your country because they are communists. They are part of, you know, they're attending Bohemian Grove. Yes, I said it. They are, behem you know, attending uh, the Bilderberg Group or Davos. These elitists. This is what this is what is going on, and that's why there's a huge fight over here. I mean, bringing it up to date in many ways. You had uh, Theresa May's deal. It would have kept us in the EU as a vassal state, which is basically we would have just had to put up with being in in the EU. Um, not being able to participate in any of the legality and the controls whatsoever. And we would have just been spooned from the inside, which we have been. Then, Boris Johnson's deal, in many ways, is just as bad. Um, the concern is about a no deal. We didn't, we didn't vote for a deal. We voted to leave the European Union. And they have done whatever they can to stop that. In the past, we had a guy called Ollie Robbins, Robinson um, negotiating us leaving the EU on, on the EU's behalf. And this particular gentleman, when he was at university, was uh, writing essays, bestowing the delights of Stalin, etc. And just a little reminder, a couple of years ago, in the last three years, uh, Tony, Blair now, our pre Tony uh, Blair, our previous prime minister, was um, on a radio show where he he uh, he said that he was following Trotsky. He used to follow Trotsky when he was at university. Only one person picked that up. It's endemic within a thinking, well, the Fabian society, I, and all this kind of thing. I would take it even further because I pointed this out to my own pastor when the Catholic Church chose their new pope. And I said, I don't understand why the Catholic cho Church has chosen a communist as the Pope. And Absolutely. he looked at me and I said, no, look at what he has been preaching down in South America. Yay, we got someone from South America. But look at what he says and what he does. And I said, he's going to be proven to be a pure communist. Now, just yes. about two years ago, he went to China. And at the point, the Catholic, the Rome appointed any bishops in China. Not the Communist Party, but now the Communist Party is choosing the Catholic popes in China. And I said, point two. Now look at the Amazon Synod that, that just occurred. And he then goes further, makes a statement to a, his best friend, who happens to be an atheist, that he does not believe in the divinity of Jesus. The Catholic yeah, I've Church just seen, is also yeah. joined so it's, yeah. it's it's not just the EU. It's not just China trying to become that global center of power. It's now it's also including the Catholic Church joining in. Absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 um it he uh, yeah. There's an article in the Daily Mail where he's talking about this, saying that he's saying this as heretical belief. Absolutely right, and. Uh, it doesn't surprise me one iota because he wants to be, uh, it's like the leader of, uh, you know, the one world religion. I mean, I've got friends of mine that attended the one world religion conference. If anyone doesn't think it exists, it exists. 
the One World Religion Conference. I mean, you, uh, my hair, our hair would stand on end if I told you stories of some of the goings on that was going on there. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, no, I mean the the uh, he had a he had a Pope Francis had a had a new uh, sculpt um, sculpt uh, put in and into uh, outside the Vatican there first time in 400 years and it was uh, a bunch of uh, refugees on a boat i mean he is so left-wing extremely he's a communist extremely liberation theology and all this if we go through those routes um yeah it's uh, you're absolutely right Annie, and that's why we have to have our eyes open and many many people sadly don't and i am mystified why they don't partly i think because they want to find a bucket of sand and not look at all these issues um, and we have to, because this is such global spiritual warfare. Um, this is what is going. This is what is going on across the globe. Um, and of course, people, people then think. Uh, I say, from a Christian point of view, as this leads up to the man of perdition who can come along and, uh, and uh, as the Antichrist and solve all these problems. Um, well, you know, it seems to be that way to me. If people think we're crazy, then ask why they allowed at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. for Islam to have their services. As soon as there is a Muslim service in a Christian church, that no longer is a Christian church. It becomes their mind. Absolutely. Why did they allow the Pope Mm -hmm. and the Imam Mm -hmm. in Turkey to perform a service together? And why Mm – and all this occurred after – this was this movement between Islam and Christianity to unite as a single religion. You know, it, they, they, like I said, they feed us little bits, a little bit here, a little bit there. Do you tolerate it? Do you pay attention to it? If you do, then they go on to the next step, and this is the next absolutely. step. Absolutely, Abs- absolutely, and it, uh, of dimitude, as Bataillor's book points out, of Eurabia, uh, in regard to uh, the whole thing of dimitude. Uh, uh, absolutely, and. Uh, yeah, I mean it is a major, it is a major issue. We've had these those kind of um, certain goings on that has happened in St Paul's Cathedral, but also in Southwark Cathedral. I think there was uh, a, a bunch of a bunch of people that are following Islam that went in there. Um, yeah, this is profoundly, profoundly, uh, profoundly serious. Uh, we have uh, Sharia Sharia courts over here and all this kind of thing. And then when you're discussed discuss these then it's ecumenicalism and uh you know you're being a real hater and all this kind of thing and we just turn around and go no we only have to look at the country of lebanon as um as uh, dear gabrielle talks about uh who runs uh, act for america and she talks about you know the, the civil war started in lebanon in 1975 and that was where lebanon as a christian country was taking in many members many followers of islam to uh, to uh, help them, feed them, etc., and then it reached a tipping point. Civil war starts, and then it becomes an Islamic country. That cannot be denied. It cannot be denied that, uh, as I'm looking at a particular book, that um, that uh, the uh, the battles that uh, America had creates its marines, creates its navy um, off the uh, coast of uh, Tripoli, and uh, etc. Um, because its uh, ships were being attacked by uh, by uh, marauding uh, the Barbary pirates. Uh, Muslims, yeah. the Barbary pirates. Yes, Thank Barbary you. Pirates I was trying Muslims. to think. 
but yeah, absolutely. And I was trying to think of the Barbary Wars. So thank you. And it, you know, go and the Marine song where it says on the road to Tripoli, and uh, you've got leather necks and you had neck uh, leather collars to to protect uh, the members of the Marines From so the they didn't have their heads chopped off. Yeah, absolutely. And this is history. This is history. And then we look at how and Islam went all the way up to northern Spain, and they called them the Moors instead of saying people that were following Islam. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, because we're steeped in this history. Because uh, if you look at the architecture, even in areas such as Moscow, it's Moorish architecture that you're looking at. You know, it is so much. Why did Thomas Jefferson have a Quran? He bought a Quran in London. Why? Because he said, quote, I need to know the enemy. Thomas Jefferson, who yeah. then stopped the Barbary Wars, and it wasn't one, I think believe it was three Barbary Wars that we fought, until finally we went into Tripoli because they were going to try to uh, abduct the ambassador, his wife and daughter, got him out of there, rescued everyone else. We had our, our, our sailors being captured, held as slaves to, for, the, for the Barbers. You know, Don Quixote, you ever read Cervantes, he talks about being captured and held as a slave by the Moors, by the Muslims. Mm. So this was going mm. on nonstop. Why did we have, um, oh my goodness, I'm, now I have my mind going blank, 1200, uh, where we had the Christian uh, going pilgrims, where they were being robbed, raped, and put into slavery, and we turned around, oh God, Lord, 12, right, it was 1232, now I had the major brain for it. My turn. <laughs> mm. Mm. No, don't worry, don't worry. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. I mean, then we've had the gates of Tur, the gates of Vienna, um, resistance to jihadist armies, um, and we need to be able to, you know, we're talking about that. Um, but of course, no, we're not talking about that. And if we do, then it's seen as being a bunch of racists. And then we suddenly go, well, hold on a minute. You know, we don't really want the spread of Sharia law. No, thank you. Um, so we are in, you know, Europe in regard to all this, um, the slow death of Europe, Douglas Murray's book, and now he's come out with another brilliant book called The Madness of Crowd, which, uh, looks at other PC culture. Um, this is, this is, this is huge. Um, we're not discussing any of these. If we do, then we're seen as, uh, being really, really out of order. But we're not. We have to go through history and calmly say this. I mean, I say as a Christian that I want, you know, I distinguish. There are many there are many people that would say they're Muslim background, but they do not follow Islam. And then I want these people to become Christians. Um, yeah, that's that's the truth. That's the truth of it. But there seems to be Islam, as we say, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend, says the left. And it's being used to suppress suppress things and that goes back uh in history as well um but these issues are real and we have to educate ourselves on the money and and curtis very much so all right well mark it has been a pleasure to have you with us it looks like we've got our next guest in up on the line here um we're going to have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about because with Definitely. Brexit, you have now also the second scottish referendum you've got uh, Boris Johnson, another election coming up. There's so many more mm. topics we could have touched upon, but that was just the tip of the iceberg, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Mark. And people can well, find uh, you where? Uh, they can find me on uh, 
www.creativehubproductionslimited.com. They can find me on uh, Facebook. You can always email me, marksutherland26 at gmail.com. And watch my little film, Between Lambs and Lions, on YouTube. And I've got another one coming out about communism, which I must get out there. And then you you guys, well, you saw it very kindly the other day, Annie, so you can give it a good review. Um, and I need to get that out ready for the 2020 election. But thank you well, very much for having me work. on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. All right. Have a great day. Speak to you soon. And you, God bless. All right. All right. We got Mark Sutherland. Thank you very much. Now we got next up on the line, Daphne Barak. She's got a new book out, To Plea or Not to Plea, the story of Rick Gates and the Mueller investigation. Good afternoon, Daphne. How are you today? Good afternoon. How are you, Annie? I am doing fine. I had a lot of fun reading your book. Boy, you had my head spinning. <laughs> I really got to tell you. <laughs> you you know, know, it's so funny because it's also a CBS exclusive. And, of course, I, as everybody knows, I am a longtime friend of pre- uh, President Trump. But I guess my friend in CBS and I'm also the senior interviewer of 60 Minutes Australia, they saw it would be like this cheerleading book. And, of course, uh, it is pro-Trump because I love him, but uh, it's not. So basically, the, oh, my God, we were so surprised. So many funny anecdotes and and romantic anecdotes between Donald and Melania and unknown stories. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's it, right? And the humane drama of a, a person like Rick Gates, and as we know, Mike Flynn, uh, being um, basically uh, caught in this, terrible, uh, uh, ferocious uh, uh, power game uh, investigation that if the government is going after you, Annie, you have no chance to survive. Could you imagine how terrible it is? Yeah, I I could very, very easily imagine. And, you know, they destroyed uh, General Flint. What they what they've done to Gates, they already had done to General Flynn, and now you see coming out in the end that it wasn't even legal what they did to him. So then, as I was reading your book and everything was unfolding with General Flynn and the truth about the Pfizer warrants, I'm wondering how much of that illegal material did they use to get Rick Gates? And I'm telling you, uh, the way, I, I mean, as a president, asked me, how did you meet Rick Gates? Because we are family millionaire friends and everything. He's like, how did he meet you? I said, your son, Eric, right? And he was like, oh, my God. But Eric, uh, Eric Trump introduced Bill, my husband, and myself. By the way, Bill is uh, coming with a huge book uh, at Trump, Erdogan, and Turkey and Syria, uh, which Trump has known for a while, so it's so uh, but by the way, so basically he was saying like, uh, how, so Eric said, would you meet Rick Gates? Because as you remember, Annie, at that point, Trump nailed the majority of delegates to be the RNC nominee for presidency, but Ted Cruz didn't like it. So he was trying to steal delegates for a lunch or a hotel night. And for that reason, Trump asked uh, Bill and I and friends like, like us to become delegates and Eric asked us to do that. I said with pleasure. And he introduced us to Regate. At that point Paul Manafort and Rick Gates were in charge of the convention. Said Rick, meet Daphne. She's such a long time friend of the family, special friendship. Uh, she and Bill are going to be delegates. 
but we didn't become friends or anything. It's just like, you know, uh, phone calls back and forth. When the inauguration happened, because Bill, because Rick was at that point the deputy chairman of Tom Bark, a mutual friend of Trump and us, um, we stayed at the Trump Hotel. We were with the family and friends, and we suddenly started to bump into each other and have coffee, go to the gym, and really bond up. And I like Paul Manafort, who was flashy, you know, jackets, $10,000 jackets and everything. I'm sure a great guy. Uh, Rick was part of us because he, he didn't ask for the limelight. My, his interview with me is his first ever. He always was in the shadow. He was very likable. People would, used to call him for uh, invitation for the inauguration dinner, VAP candlelight with then uh, President-elect Trump and, and their parents. Or if they were not friends like me with Trump, where could you get? as their resume to the transition team. So think about it one, one day, Annie, at uh, end of October 2017, boom, the whole country is stopping. There are two first indictments coming. On Friday, everybody's speculating all over the weekend, and Monday, boom, it's uh, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. And everybody's life was interrupted. Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, uh, uh, General Flynn before uh, it was just interrupted you know it's like Rick Gates who was the most likable person before became radioactive could you imagine nobody wanted to call him no no. what, what I found interesting is that this guy no one really truly knew you know, the public doesn't know him but if you were someone in on the power side someone part of the Trump team or other political affiliates he was the ultimate insider but he was also played it like an invisible man. You know, he he enjoyed staying in the background, pulling the strings or doing whatever job he needed to be done. He didn't like to be put in the limelight. And suddenly now with the indictment, he's such a stage. It's very, very smart what you touched on it because he told me about his childhood that uh, his father was uh, in the army. So they were traveling and they were in Germany and he he liked playing football, what you and I call uh, soccer, right? And they said he learned how to be a team player and not to be the leader, uh, just a team player. So he wouldn't upset anybody, not the leader of the football, anything, just to be very likable. And I think that was a, a, a good um, a good lesson. And, uh, yeah, he never uh, got any interview with All the Shadow. I remember when I was in the Trump Hotel, you know, Eric Trump or others used to tell me, uh, oh, Rick Gates uh, is calling you. And I looked down from the BLT restaurant where is he? I never saw him because he was always with the phone in his uh, in his ear. But he was always like, you know, sort of this invisible. And uh, I think the moment that I decided to do this book, Annie, was, when they, after he was indicted and nobody called him, he became radioactive over a second, right? The man that everybody wanted to meet, boom. Of course, we didn't call him either. But after a while, uh, I did I did call him uh, because there was like in the news that he was thinking whether to plea or not to plea. Of course, Manafort pushed him not to plea. Of course, you and I know why, because he would plea, he would, be, he would plea against him. Uh, and it's of course, uh, Manafort had the right to do that. 
so uh, basically, I did call him. I didn't even tell my husband. When he heard afterwards, he said, what did you do? The FBI is probably all, all over your phone. I just felt this guy that needs somebody to talk to. And I just said, look, Rick, whatever you want to choose, it's between you and your wife, Brooke, and your family. Nobody can tell you what to do. The only advice I'm giving you is they probably, the FBI knows the truth anyway. So don't lie. Just go with the truth. But whether you decide to plea or not to plea, it's up to you. And then we met for lunch, and it was a, you know, a bit uh, awkward situation. And uh, uh, I remember at the end of the lunch, I missed one of my senator's friends, Mobab. So would you have it? And he looked at his phone. He did have it. He gave my husband another mobile of a general that he wanted to talk to. And they usually say to Annie that I'm like this access. I would have any mobile of any head of state and everything on my phone. Beside overseas head of states, Rick had similar data. But he looked at me and he said, hey, Duff, I have all these mobiles that everybody wants to have, but I cannot use it. Nobody would take my call. Could you imagine this loneliness? Oh, wow. Here he is. He was at the pinnacle of power. He was everyone's darling, even though, you know, he didn't want the limelight. And if he needed anything done, he just picked up the phone and immediately it was done. And now he's thrown out there and it's just him sitting out there. But that's not his primary thought. His primary thought was protecting his wife and family. And here he is. He's now thrown into the spotlight for a crime that he doesn't feel is he, it's fair and he's trying to protect his young daughters because what's going to happen to them if their friends in school find out what's going on with dad dad's a criminal oh my goodness your dad's being indicted he's going to go to jail kids are not <laughs> they don't take those things very easily and kids can be cool to other kids and, and you're the first I've done by now I think 40 interviews you're the first one who understood that and I'm I'm, I'm applauding you because People don't understand. I'm a friend of the president, so it's not like a, a but it, it's a really humane drama. It can happen, God forbid, to you and I or anybody. I hope it never. If you are caught inside a government investigation, the government goes full speed against you. You have nothing to choose. It's not that he had to choose between plea or not to plea like I thought when I had gone into it. No, he couldn't because then they doubled the charge, or tripled the charge. He, he didn't have the millions, and he had uh, young kids, and he was breaking down. They did it to break him down, right? And by the way, the charges against Rick Gates and Paul Manafort have nothing to do with Donald Trump. They have to do with 2010, 2011, 12, 13, 14 in their conduct in Ukraine. And the president they worked for, pro-Russian president they worked for in Ukraine, was ousted in 2014. They started to work for Donald Trump in 2016. So why would you and I were required to pay more than $30 million taxpayers to investigate a, a quote-unquote, was there any pro-Russian collusion in 2016 when we ended up with this indictment? It, it's crazy. I mean, it's beyond crazy. But you're right about his uh, uh, young kids, Rick, uh and his wife broke manage in all this craziness to shelter the three young kids. They have four. Uh, the fourth one does know what's happening, uh, but uh, the three one did not. 
have not until this day. I hope they would not. And um, although he cut the plea deal and they really were so cruel that he has to uh, testify against Paul Manafort, which has nothing to do with Trump, um, they refuse to take his electrical bracelet off until he delivers the goods. The goods, that means that he will be so cruel against Paul Manafort. And uh, he didn't want to do that. Paul Manafort was his patron. He started his career. Why would he want to do that? He had no choice. And he and he told me that, uh, you know, it was summer. It was sweating. And, uh, you know, his kids uh, couldn't see that he had a bracelet. So he had to be with long pants during the sweating summer until he delivered the very vicious, malicious uh, testimony against uh, Paul Manafort. And, you know, Annie, have you seen the ancient Rome, like, you know, the gladiators? You know, you put two gladiators into a cage and it's entertainment for everybody. Whoever killed the other survived so much blood. Same thing here. They said to Rick, you have to go after Manafort all the way. And Manafort also went after him because they, his attorneys, uh, brought up uh, Rick infidelity against his wife, uh, which he dealt with his wife in 2009. But And it's not that they found anything new. It was Rick telling the prosecutor everything about his life. It's part of the plea deal. And they chose to use it. Uh, so it was very cool to both sides. I mean, it was like such a bloody, bloody scene. Don't you agree? Absolutely. It was a cat and mouse game. You know, people, you really have to read this book to understand what the government has done to Rick and to Paul. Um, it's called to plea or not to plea. What got me was here he gets hit with this 31 count indictment. Boom. Overnight. And who does he go to court with? A public defender. And he goes through a series of different attorneys. But no one provided him with these uh, attorneys. He had to come out of his own pocket. But because he's under indictment, he's on the beck and call of these prosecutors. He cannot get a job. He cannot provide for his family. He is left with his wife having to be the main breadwinner. And yet, even though he has to take his kids back and forth to school or something like that, he can't go out of the jurisdiction. He has to be there at the beck and call, at the drop of the dime. You exactly. get that phone call, you get your butt over here. And by the way, that and, was his his wife, and his wife has a, a got cancer. Uh, she's battling cancer. Now, we never know if it was there or not, but, you know, it can be affected by mental stuff. So he had he had to battle so many things Uh his wife's cancer, his, uh, four kids, everything. No means to to make money, and no way to travel because uh, let's see if somebody even agrees to to hire him. How can you do that when you have to be on call uh, for the prosecutions twenty four seven and no uh, and no way to travel because you don't have a passport. The passport was just returned to him uh, a few weeks ago, and still. Neither him nor Mike Flynn have the sentencing. When you know, Annie, when we decided on the book and the film, we thought that by now, wow, it will be like five, six months after the sentencing. You know what I'm saying, right? No way. And still, a his sentencing is conditioned to his performance, quote unquote, at the Roger Stone uh, trial next week. 
He has, he's forced to testify he did not want to. He likes what is done. And it's not that he has to just tell the truth. He, he, they want a certain lingo, right? And and he hates it. And, but, and, and what do we know? They may ask him to testify in another five, six. You know what's so terrible in this plea deal that I didn't know before I went into this book? It's not a deal. Every deal is between you and I. You give, I take, I give, you take, right? This deal is one-sided. The prosecutors can decide at any time, any, to walk back on on you and say you lied. They did it to Paul Manafort. People do forget that Paul Manafort did plea, did cut a plea deal after his first trial to try to avoid more charges, and then they got all the information. Then they went walked back on him, said, "Oh, you lied, and you communicated with uh, your attorney, communicated with Bob Giuliani." So they got the information and they walked back, right? They did it also on Papadopoulos. They may do it on on Flea next month, and I hope they don't do it on on Rick. Uh, I'm just praying for him. Uh, and secondly, the timeline, Annie. Any deal in our life, whether it's good news or bad news, has a timeline. Let's say, God forbid, bad. Bad news, you go to the doctor tomorrow and they said, Annie, you have to go for surgery. What would be your first question? Hey, when can I go back to my radio show? What is the recovery time? Oh, three months, two months, whatever. You know what to work with. Let alone jail, right? There's no timeline. I mean, they can continue and ask. Rick thought he just had to testify against uh, Paul Manafort, which he didn't choose to, of course. Uh, but now he had testified against Craig or whatever. Uh, on August, and now he has to testify in Roger Stone's uh, trial, which he's really not doing it voluntarily. And what if they have other five, six rela- uh, related investigations? It can go on and on and on and on. It's it's what we call a deal from uh, from hell. Absolutely. It is a deal with the devil. The worst part is is that he got tossed from one set of prosecutors to another set. So that deal made with the original may not always and does not always transfer from one set of prosecutors to another. He's went up into the third, fourth or fifth different types of prosecutors. He goes from one investigation to another to another eventually. And he starts to make a relationship with these prosecutors thinking that, you know, he's getting to know them. They're going to be a little bit easier on me. And then, nope, as soon as he's comfortable, boom, they flip him, they turn him over to someone else, he's back to square one. And the cruelty in which it's done. Go ahead. And another very vicious uh, element, uh, you're so smart, Annie, another very uh, vicious element, uh, Donald Trump happens to be a friend of mine, you know, a longtime friend of my husband and I. So we talk privately a lot. And, uh, And for that reason, we met, right? So... Think about the walls of loneliness. Like you have a Donald Trump that on one hand, whether you are right-wing or like me or left-wing, there's a human being there. And he has been completely betrayed by anybody. Like people like Amarosa and Cliff Stevens, anybody gave it a job, a big job opportunity, they've been taping him behind his back. They've been writing books about him behind his back. I mean, could you imagine the, the the feeling how lonely he felt when I, I talked to Melania as well? I mean, he had that other girl who took $26 million. Uh, could you imagine that uh, for the inauguration? Crazy. And and this is a guy who, who we expect to make the biggest decision about security, economy, and he's doing a great job. I just saw him a couple of weekends ago. 
and in the middle of all this escalating impeachment inquiry, he was asking me about how is a future friend doing and taking the books, uh, cards of Bill and I, because the books were just coming the next week. So gracious. We talked like usually 10, 15 minutes. Great guy, right? But he, he, he didn't forget his graciousness. And, and I was applauding him. I was, I was worried about him. And on the other end, you have, uh, a, you know, so, and so you have a wall that Donald Trump is being told by the media, oh, Rick Gates is flipping against you. Mike Flynn is flipping against you. Not true, because Rick Gates has said it all the time. There was no Russian collusion. In fact, Annie, the first day we came there without a, a, a lawyer, he, he wasn't even shown the charges. He said, no guilty. And I said, why did you do that, Rick? He said, well, because I thought it was all about Russian collusion. I know there was no Russian collusion. I said, not guilty. The next day, so the charges was all about Ukraine. Nothing to do with this, right? And by the way, they might have not even got to deal with him about the plea deal because they wanted him to say, yes, Russian collusion. And he refused that. At all points, he stuck to no Russian collusion. People don't know that. But Donald Trump did know that. Did not know that. So he's reading in the press. Rick flipped against him, Flynn flipped against him. It's not true. So think about the loneliness. On the other end, Rick hears, as I'm sure Flynn heard, but I don't know, but Rick for sure heard that Trump is so upset about him, that he flipped, and he felt that he he betrayed him, which is not true. And they cannot communicate with with each other because it would be obstruction of justice. Rick could not even call mutual friends. Could you imagine? I mean, even when I talked to the president and I told him I was doing the book, I didn't give the details because you have to be so legally conscious, right? So just think how it is like divide and conquer and you build this wall of loneliness. Uh, It's so unfair for every side. Don't you agree? Absolutely, because when they uh, tagged Jerome Corsi, I I spoke with Jerome uh, I know him. I've uh, met him a number of years ago. He's been a guest on the show, as well as Roger Stone and Pastor Paula White and Judge Janine Pirro. Um, I spoke to Jerome afterwards, and he goes, they want me to lie. And he goes, I will not lie before my God. He goes, I will always tell the truth. And he goes, come after me. And thank God Jerome is countersuing. But it, this is this is what they'll do. They say, all right, we're going to go after this person. We want to take them down any way possible. We're going to make you tell a lie. You're going to perjure yourself, but we're going to order you to perjure. This is what they did yeah. to Rick Gates. This is what they tried to do to Roger Stone and to Jerome Corsi. These are purely evil people, but this is our government doing it to its own citizens and to its own sitting president. It's very disturbing, and, and Judge Anini is a friend of mine as well, and uh... Of course, we know that. And I I tell you one thing. Look, even uh, beside Rick Gates, who was caught into it uh, as a witness, and Michael Flynn, there was this sweet guy, Michael Caputo, who was nothing. He was just a little witness, right? He had to sell his house. They got him bankrupt. Daphne, do you think that when the IG report comes out and the bar investigation is completed, do you think people are going to be held accountable and go to jail? That's a good question. Very valid question. Uh, I mean, I, I look. I hope so because there was there was very. I mean, the whole Mueller investigation, which we paid more than thirty million dollars, you and I, and everybody, all the listeners, 
had nothing to do with uh, the Trump-Russian collusion. The people were charged with charged with uh, either uh, Ukraine, like Manafort, or Rick Gates, or, uh, and then the judge is screaming at, at uh, Michael Flynn about his Turkish in, interactions. I mean, what the hell, right? Uh, um, I think they should be. Um, with this a very... Uh, partisan uh, environment with the Democrats investigating right now the Ukraine thing and everything. I don't know if it will be uh, going forward that you're suggesting I think we should because I, I think the, the president has to focus on one narrative and I don't know if he can focus on more but there is a very disturbing question there. I applaud your question. Wow. I, I honestly, I don't know if anyone ever is going to be held accountable. They haven't gotten Hillary Clinton, so why should we expect anyone else? But it is a <laughs> <I> powerful. Mean, <laughs> I mean, go ahead. I have to I have to say, everybody knows, I used to be a Democrat. It was Donald Rose. I hosted Hillary at my home. She sang she happy birthday to my husband. Uh, Donald was, uh, of course. But, I mean, could you believe, I didn't believe that. Um when they found that they, she hammered or somebody hammered all the mobiles to get the information out. I mean, are you talking about obstruction of justice and you're ignoring that? I've never heard about people hammering mobiles. What's wrong with you? <laughs> if it was you and I, Annie, we would be in jail. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did not vote for her when she ran for Senate. Matter of fact, my husband and I, before she got sworn in, left the state of New York for South Carolina. <laughs> I said, she's not going to be my <laughs> senator. <laughs> oh, no, man. It's, it's, it is it's a, just crazy. It's just crazy. And look, the whole thing is very, very uh, apparent, right? I mean, when Donald Trump was elected, Half of the country not only didn't like it, as usual, half of the country don't like the election. That's normal. Half of the the country was so shocked, hateful. I, I'm part of Hollywood. All my Hollywood friends tweeted it. Okay, it will pass. We'll, we'll find a way to remove him, to impeach him, to <laughs> to cancel it. It does. I said, what do you mean? In four four years, you can vote against him, but you cannot do anything else. And my liberal huge friends, I mean, they didn't see anything wrong with, with the narrative. And I think that's how we started. But the, the drama in my book, To Clear or Not to Please, the Rick Gates story and the Romulan investigation is that the human beings, families, kids who have been uh, caught inside. And um, I think that's why the book is so powerful. Besides the very juicy and, and gossipy and funny stuff, is like, Hey, there were families caught inside. Their lives were interrupted. Their life would never come back. Mueller left town end of March 2019. He left so many casualties on the road. People like Rick Gates or Michael Flynn or others suddenly realized, oh, we, we cannot, any, all the connection we did, all the relations are gone. He left town, and now we're in the mercy of new people. And why? And also the deals, the deals are, are always the, between the prosecutor and the, the like Mueller and them. And the the Mueller team never informed them that there are judges there uh, who, who will not, who may not take the deal. You saw what happened with Flynn. He came last December 
They thought there was no jail. He came with his family. He thought it was an end of a terrible uh, ordeal. And the judge almost said, you are a traitor, right? Yeah. What's, what's powerful about your book is the way you have written it. You started off in your voice, but when you start to get into the story about Rick, you say it's better for him to speak. And you let him, you, you, we hear his words, and we feel the power of his emotion, his frustration, and, and the, the terror that he's been placed under. And then towards the end, you come back into your own voice. So we hear two different voices, but you also hear the heart and soul of Rick being poured out on those pages. And, and you know, Annie, he's been misportrayed because as I, I mean, because he's been. Oh, what'd you do? Uh-uh. Curtis. Oh, uh, I'm basically... sorry. The switchboard acted up a little bit there. Sorry about that. Don't worry. I mean, because me, Rick has always been in the shadow, it is, it's his first interview with me. Uh, some people in the base believe that he really flipped against Trump. And they said, oh, we love Flynn, but we hate him. No, we actually did not flip. And he actually helped uh, to prevent other investigation. I know the names. Uh, names of friends of mine. And, and he was very brave. Uh, and nobody said, come on, Mike Flynn did some problems, uh, some mistakes with Turkey. Rick and Manafort did some mistakes in, in Ukraine. But this has nothing to do with Trump. And uh, he actually was brave. And he was portrayed like as a sleeper, like Michael Cohen. And I think, no, he's the one who says in the book, and you read it, Annie, that he was shocked that Michael would come and say that I didn't want to job in the White House because he was crying on Rick's shoulders in the lobby of the Trump Hotel. Like, how could they do it for me? He said, how could he lie like that? And, and uh, you know, he's not a sleeper. He's just somebody who was trying to uh, help his family, but he did say no at all point. There was no Russian collusion from A to Z. Uh, he said his truth, which is actually protecting the president. And um, as a base, and the reason I'm, I'm doing this interview, the base has to know that, you know. The president already know it from me, but the base has to know that. He is not, he did not flip. He is not a rat. He's somebody who was caught in between. He didn't have $500 million to fight it, and he did his best under, under the circumstance, circumstances, which I don't wish to my enemy if I have any. No, what he had gone through, uh, the constant questioning and the same questions over and over and over. And if he answered it one bit different, you know, they would go, uh-huh, we got you. So you had to be so super careful. And what I found the worst part was, was the snap inspection on his home and his wife was home alone. Thankfully, the kids weren't there. Oh, my that, God, that did you read that? Oh, my crucial. God. So that's a, that's a day, November Ace was the election, so Trump was so hysterical about. So we were filming with him. <clears throat> the whole country was going to fill, to vote. And November ninth, he's at my place in a D.C. presidential suite hotel, <clears throat> and suddenly his wife is calling, and it's like 10 a.m. And she said, "Oh my God! I mean, thank God the kids are in the kindergarten." Uh, because uh, this woman came, she said she's FBI. Never happened. It's a year after he cut the deal, right? 
or a few months after, several months after, and she's scared. She's opening the door, and she said, uh, here's my card. I have to inspect the house, and why, whatever. And she goes, they never coordinate with their lawyers against the law, and it was intimidating. And as she left, she said, I know your husband is in a hotel in D.C. Oh, my God. Whatever. And uh, she called him. And he called his attorney. Of course, it was against the law. Uh, but I said, something else is going on. They're trying to send you a message, right? And apparently, uh, that morning, you know, it was the morning after the Republican lost the election. A session was fired at 8 a.m. Nobody knew until this afternoon. So they wanted to send send him a message. Don't have a glee. We are on you. But it was terrible. And, and just think if one of the kids was sick at home, say, Mommy, what's going on? Why, why is this woman here? It was a terrible thing. I mean, it's a beyond thing. But did you see there's a very funny thing there? When Rick, well, uh, Rick, oh, well, when Rick meets, uh, when Rick meets uh, Robert Mueller. Oh, yeah, it is. It's a great book. It's called To Plea or Not to Plea. Daphne, I've got my next guest up in the bullpen with us. I want to thank you for joining us. It is a fantastic book. If you want to know what's really going on about the Mueller investigation, what is happening to the victims of the Mueller investigation, this is the book that really opens it wide open. Daphne, it's a wonderful book. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Annie. And I will connect you with my husband who's coming with his foreign policy book about Erdogan, Turkey, and Trump going out uh, next week, and Trump and, and, and uh, Pompeo is behind it. I think you'll be a fantastic interviewer because you're so knowledgeable. Oh, thank you very much. You're making me blush. <laughs> Daphne, All right. have a great day. Right, God bless. Big Take act. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, check it out, To Plea or Not to Plea. It is a great book. And let's bring on Running for the Senate, out of the great state of Kentucky, C. Wesley Morgan. Good afternoon, Mr. Morgan. How are you today? I'm fine, Annie. How are you doing? I am doing fine. It has been a whirlwind day today on the show today. Ah, I can't believe we're down two and a half hours, and <laughs> you're the gem in the pot here. You are running. Well, thank you're you. going to challenge Mitch McConnell. Someone's finally yes, gotten ma'am. out there to challenge Mitch McConnell. Why? Well, you think you, you got know, a I absolutely have a chance. Uh, Mitch McConnell only has a 33% approval rating in the state of Kentucky uh, overall and about a 50-50 approval rating, uh, 50 approved and 50 disapproved with the Republican Party of Kentucky. So we absolutely have a chance, and we, I'm a constitutional conservative. Uh, Mitch McConnell is a, a born rhino. There's no question about it. Uh, there's nothing conservative about Mitch McConnell other than the year that he runs for re-election. That's the only time he becomes conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my Lindsey Graham. But uh, you've got an interesting background because uh, uh, you're from Kentucky yourself. You're not someone that just moved there just to uh, buy a seat. Uh, but you family owned small businesses. They're from coal mining. You've got a uh, background with the, the government also and in law enforcement and prosecution. You've got a very interesting and wide background. Give us a little bit about who you are and why you well, are I better am, than uh, uh, Well, first off, I'm 69 years old, uh, and I was I was raised in the in the 50s and the uh, early 60s and. 
And uh, I, I know what it is to live in a country that was uh, uh, quite a bit free back then, and it's, it's not now. And um, uh, I, I went to college on a national defense uh, student loan out of a really uh, rural um, place called Hyden, Kentucky. Uh, that is, uh, the economy was basically coal mining and and um, and some uh, retail and, and things like that. Uh, my dad uh, actually owned some taxi cabs, um, and I was in the the liquor business also uh, at my in, after I'd started college uh, in '68. Uh, but uh, I graduated from college, and then I worked to, went to work for the United States Treasury Department. Uh, I was uh, stationed in about uh, five different uh, cities until I resigned in 1982, and and moved back to Richmond, went in business to, for myself. And and I, like everybody else, I was basically concerned with raising a family and and making a living, not paying too much attention about politics other than going and voting. Uh, uh, Republican uh, each primary and each general election as the years went by. And then all of a sudden, I looked up, and Barack Obama was being elected uh, a president of the United States, and, and and we said, "Oh my God, what has happened to our country?" And then I got involved and started backing candidates, and and uh, a lot of the candidates that I backed uh, and gave them money and, and helped them win, uh, they'd get they'd get in place, and then they would join in with the rest of the of the the rhinos are the people who were not representing the people that elected them. And I said, "Well, if we're going to do anything." If we're going to do anything, we're going to do it on our own. And so I took on a uh, state representative uh, that uh, that the Democrats had held the seat for 50 years and 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 beat that uh, that representative in 2016 in uh, District 81 in uh, in uh, Madison County, Kentucky. Yeah, um, and the fact uh, that you took something six decades held by Democrats and turned it to a Republican is an amazing feat. Well, people just have to learn how to uh, how to win an election. This is the same way that we'll probably win this election, is that uh, you know you uh, out in Kentucky you have about 1.4 million registered Republicans. The problem with that is there's only about 400,000 of them that vote, and uh, so there's about a million of them out there that, for the most part, in primaries, not necessarily a general election, but in primaries, you you have about a million of them that's actually not turning out. But with what's coming up next year. Uh, and and the low ratings that McConnell has, and and with Trump probably going to be on the um, uh, on the ballot in May of uh, 2019 or uh, 2020, uh, I think we have an a, a, an excellent shot at it. The only thing that we, the biggest problem we're having, Annie, is McConnell is a, a is a ruthless man who who uh, controls the Republican Party of Kentucky and has controlled it forever. In fact, I call him a narcissist because. Uh, I believe that uh, you know the only thing he worries about is his money and his power. He doesn't really worry about the people until he acts like he's worried about the people during election years. But um, but I think it's it's time to overturn him and get him gone and uh, and let's go back to operating our country based upon the Constitution of the United States and not based upon the whims of people like Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or, or Mitch McConnell. Now, your website, which is uh, WesleyMorganForSenate.com, <clears throat> you list all the things uh, that you believe in. And as I read it, it is extremely conservative and constitutionalist. Um, but you also expose the voting record of Mitch McConnell, and you go all the way back to um, the 90s. But one of the things we discussed on the show a couple of weeks back was his involvement in China. And it's something that also you touch in on 
your website also, you know, what he voted for and what connections he has with there. And when I learned about them, I was surprised. But we have foreign powers. I'm sorry, I was just going to say we have certain foreign powers that have direct access into our government through officials like Mitch McConnell. Well, ma'am, here's what, what they're doing. You know, you cannot legally accept money or campaign contributions from a foreign entity uh, when you're running for any kind of, a, you know, a, a federal uh, office. Uh, the problem with that is it doesn't it doesn't cover your children or your spouse. So um, let's talk about Joe Biden just for a moment with his son Hunter. I think everybody's aware that uh, that they got about 1.5 billion dollars from China. Well, let's look at uh, Elaine Chow. Elaine Chow, her and uh, McConnell have been married, I think, since the early 90s. And her family, who came from Formosa, uh, her family owns a shipping company that uh, is a a pretty lucrative um, or successful company that ships uh, goods between China and the United States. And the problem with that is that most of their loans has come from the Red Chinese at the back of China, and all of their ships have been manufactured in Red China. So, uh, you know, if, if you have a business that's operating between China and the United States, I mean, it is certainly a good thing to have uh, a Senate majority leader uh, married to one of, the, uh, one of the children of the owner of this, uh, of this shipping company. And uh, that way you don't get any laws passed that might uh, interfere somehow with, your, with the uh, movement of uh, merchandise between Red China and the United States. And, I, and, you know, they gave uh, Elaine and Mitch about, I, I heard, $54 million. It was just given to them. They, they act like they don't have anything to do with it, but I believe that they have now found that she actually does own some of that company. And uh, that book uh, by Peter Schweitzer, uh, Secret Empires, has Mitch McConnell right on the front cover. And there's, a, there's a, actually a chapter dedicated to him and Elaine. So yeah, it, 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 he is the 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 political machine in Kentucky, and actually now in the Senate, uh, which we do have to have unseated. You know, we need honest politicians. Uh, and on your site, you you talk about a lot of the different issues, and we have we have been our our faith has been under attack, whether it's through speech uh, dis- displays. But even our belief in what is marriage and now being incurred with the LBGT community going into our schools and promoting their moral values over our faith, uh, you believe strongly in the First Amendment. I believe quite strongly in, in all the amendments, in the first, second, the fourth, and, and, and Mitch McConnell has attacked about all of them. The First Amendment, of course, you know, I, I believe in free speech all the way. I, I don't think there's any any exception to that at all, to be quite honest with you. I believe that you should be able to say anything you want to say. Now, you might be consequences. I mean, you can't, you know, shout to fire in a, in a theater or something. But but for the most part, it, uh, you know, free speech is what makes this country Second Amendment. Look at look Mitch McConnell's voting record. Voted seven times against the Second Amendment. Uh, look, he claims to be a conservative when it comes to judges. He voted for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a, a woman who believes that a, that a young girl of 12 should be able to get married. 
the other one was Stephen Byer, I believe, that uh, Mitch voted for. Mitch acts like that uh, the people of Kentucky should return him to the Senate so that we he can fill the conservative judgeships that's uh, out there. But but notice what Mitch McConnell did in August. Mitch McConnell, we had they had a recess and all, everybody left town. But Mitch left someone in place in the Senate to gavel in every day so that, that the President Trump could not make recess appointments. Harry Reid did the exact opposite and gaveled it out and let uh, Barack Obama fill every appointment he wanted to on a recess appointment. And under the law, if, uh, if uh, McConnell had recessed the Senate in August, then President Trump could have filled every appointment that he had as a recess appointment. Now, obviously, they would still have to go through the confirmation process, but they, they would be in place and doing the job that the president needs them to be doing. One thing I wanted to mention when I started to mention Paul Gold is that when anytime you run against Mitch, you know Mitch McConnell changed law in in 2014. He he actually put a change in the uh, contributions to uh, federal elections. Up until then, a person could donate up to thirty two thousand four hundred dollars to the to the party or a committee of the party, not an individual. But the party or a committee of the party up to $32,400. Mitch McConnell changed that 10 times. Now a rich person can donate $324,000 to, for example, the Republican Senatorial Reelection Committee. And they take that money, and that's what you call dark money. And you take that money and you take in character sets, make someone like Judge Roy Moore in Alabama or Chris McDaniel in, in Mississippi. Or Wesley Morgan in in, uh, in Kentucky, and and that money is used to maintain their power. And look what they did here. There's a Politico article, and it says Senate GOP declares war on conservative troublemakers. The party's campaign arm vows to blackball any firm that works for a primary challenger against one of its incumbents. Now I actually have experienced that firsthand. I went to D.C. to recruit some people to raise money for us and so forth, and, and I kept running into no one would, would touch us because they said that if they did, they would be blackballed out of having any other business from any of the insiders in D.C. So uh, they make it very, very difficult for someone to run against them, and we're, we're having some problems raising money, but we're having some problems this news media. I don't think they've mentioned her name more than once. They they drive Amy McGrath, the Democrat, uh, the person running for the Democrat nomination. They they talk about her all the time, but the but the news media, the basically the the uh, election Herald leader and Courage Journal, who both are, uh, in my opinion, Democrat rags. Uh, they they constantly uh, they even endorse McConnell. Now how can how can a Democrat uh, Newspapers endorse a Republican uh, because if he was a conservative, but he's not, and that's the reason why. And Mitch is Mitch is a globalist. And there's no question he was a, he was a never Trumper. He'll never be for Trump. He acts like he is, so he can try to get reelected. And the very moment if he was to be reelected, the very moment he gets reelected, he will be uh, he he will be Donald Trump, President Donald Trump's worst nightmare. And I just hope and pray that it doesn't come down to the Senate 
that the House doesn't impeach the president, and then it comes down to a Senate vote. Uh, where, where that uh, they can get by with it, uh, Mitch will vote to put the president out. I'm I'm totally convinced of it. Uh, I agree with you on that one because I've seen him flip flop. He made some statements about two weeks ago that when it comes, and I was like, wait a minute, I thought it was like when it comes here, it's going to be dead. Because when it comes and if there is a trial, and the way he's been saying it and couching it, it's like letting us know that there's a possibility that there is going to be a trial. And uh, you, I you said know, that to my husband, and I said, Yes, you know why he does that. He does that so that he has the president, he ha- he's got him held hostage. He's, he's literally making the president endorse him for re-election, he, he and the rest of those rhino senators, because they'll threaten him that if they, he doesn't do that and, it, and, and he goes to the trial in the Senate on an impeachment, they may not be there to vote for him. So I mean, the president's the president's kind of between a rock and a hard spot. I'm sure he. I'm sure. Why do you think that Elaine Chow is uh, Secretary of Transportation? Uh, I mean, that's even a worse situation. Her being Secretary of Transportation with her shipping company family, uh, you know, making all the deals between Red China and themselves. Uh, it's it's a, it's a crazy, crazy situation, but you're up there running for the Senate, and um, it's, it's a great website because you list down the things that you feel that are important, and one of them is repealing the 16th Amendment. Now, when people say that, my question is what would you replace it with? Would you replace it with something like the fair tax or some other sort of consumption tax? I, I don't believe in any tax that requires citizens – to disclose their financial dealings. I, I, I just think that is totally against the, the, the Constitution, totally against liberty, totally against the Fourth Amendment. But, I mean, let's, let's face it, uh, income tax, it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Just read the Fourth Amendment. You shall be secure in your papers and your your place of uh, your home and so forth with the, from unwarranted searches and seizures without probable cause. Well, where's the probable cause on an audit? I don't make the exception for the income taxes because they need money. Uh, you know what they need to do? They need to cut that monstrosity down in Washington D.C. They don't. They got their their nose stuck in things that doesn't belong to them to begin with. Under the Tenth Amendment, uh, only those things that are enumerated in the Constitution are are uh, to be uh, or therefore the federal government. All everything else is reserved for the states or for the people. So unless it's enumerated in the Constitution, they have no right even being involved in it. Do you remember what they said when uh, that reporter asked Nancy Pelosi when they were trying to pass Obamacare? She said, where in the Constitution does it give you the authority to do this? And she looked at him and she said, are you kidding? These people have hijacked their country. They have hijacked their Constitution, and they need to leave, and we need to put them out of there before they completely take over the rest of the country. And, and they, they've just about got it, to be quite honest with you. And um, it, it's either now or never. And if people keep putting these tyrants back in, like McConnell, that uh, has no feelings for anyone other than his his own wealth and his own power, I believe the man's a narcissist. I honestly do. And um, uh, he, like I told you, he, he runs the Republican Party of Kentucky with an iron rod. And uh, I know it for a fact because he cost me the re-election uh, in my House seat um, 
because if he, he had the Republican Party to fully fund the Republican Party of Kentucky, to fully fund my, my opponent, my primary, and all because I would not cover up the Speaker of the House's sexual harassment. And I, I called him out for it, and he ended up having to resign, and they didn't like that because you, you're supposed to be elected, and you're supposed to go up there and, and let the, uh, the powers to be, they're supposed to control you. You're supposed to forget about your district or your state or whatever and, and, and go along with the insiders. Well, I'm not like that. I take an oath. Uh, when I take the oath, I go by my oath. Well, I'm wishing you a lot of luck because you've got one heck of an uphill battle, especially with how much power that Mitch McConnell welds. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that someone will listen to this broadcast and go to your website, which is WesleyMorganForSenate.com, and make a donation or someone volunteer to help you get signs out, get the word out, and maybe another broadcaster have you on their show to get the word out that you are out there. Well, and we need, yes, ma'am, and we need that desperately because, like I said, we're having a hard time everywhere that Mitch can do. So, uh, there's something wrong with our Facebook. I, I, I'm telling you that there is some kind of a, a – they've done something to limit our Facebook post and their uh, web post going out. It doesn't it doesn't go out very far, and uh, and we're looking into that right now. And, uh, you know, they only do that for people that are members of the deep state. But, yes, you go to MorganForSenate2020.com, and please help us uh, to – get rid of this man out of our government in D.C., uh, you will see a dramatic change. If you could send four or five good constitutional conservatives this next term, if you could send them to D.C., you would see a lockdown of that place that we would we would literally hang it up to where they would have to stop doing all the things that they were doing that's not good for the country. And pres- uh, thank God for President Trump. Uh, without President Trump, if Hillary Clinton had won, we'd already be gone. There, there would be no hope of ever recovering. But the president, is, he's standing his ground, and, and God bless him, and thank you, Lord, for sending him, because he is the uh, he's the only hope that we have. And I can't believe how many Christians are against him. Now, I know he's, I know he's not a saint, but none of us are saints. We're all sinners. But but he is certainly a saint when it comes to saving this country because what without him we'd never have a chance. Well, God bless you and good luck on your campaign. And the closer you get to the primary, we'll have you come back on again. I appreciate it, ma'am, and thank you very much for having us on. And and uh, uh, you know we just try to to state what the facts are. I'd like to tell you about two things I found out about McConnell though that just will blow your mind. Uh, if you have time for that. Uh, we've got three minutes left. Okay. First thing is go research the Smith Munt M U N D T Modernization Act. That is a a Smith Munt bill is a law that was passed in 1948 to keep propaganda out of the American news media. McConnell and Harry Reid repealed that law in 2012. That allows propaganda to be used. That's the reason we have all this fake news, because of the Smith-Mutt Act. Also, go look at where Mitch McConnell slipped into the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, House Bill 5181, that was co-sponsored by Ted Lieu, 
one of the biggest liberals from California that there is. That bill was called Countering Foreign Information and Propaganda Act. That created a $160 million slush fund to be used to censor, cons uh, censor conservative content in Facebook and, and um, a Twitter and all the social media platforms. So what does that tell you? It tells me we're in deep doo-doo. <laughs> well, yes, Wesley, good luck and have a, a great weekend. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, Curtis, we're down to our last uh, couple of minutes here. Uh, we've got coming up next week, we've got Pastor Paula White, you know, Trump's pastor. She is now officially part of the White House. Uh, she'll be joining us. Uh, I had to double check just to make sure because sometimes once they're officially part of the White House, you know, they don't want to do something like this. But, yes, she is coming back on. She's got a new book out also that she wants to talk about. Got your friends Glenda White and Royal Brown also joining us next week. So we're going to have a rocking good time next week. So, guys, uh, that's about all I have, Curtis. Good. I'm telling you, today went fast. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It just, we just flew absolutely. through. It's amazing. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but I just wanted one. to it take a moment to to salute all the veterans out there and maybe we all get to honor them Monday on Veterans Day. That's all. Oh, yes. Monday is Veterans Day. Uh, there's lots of uh, parties and parades, but the most important thing is to remember why we have a holiday. It's to honor those men and women that are our veterans, men and women just like you, Curtis. So thank you for your service. And with that, I appreciate it. we'll be leaving with uh, Gary Pecorella and uh, save America. I'm praying for this land I love. America. America. The home of the free. But there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her, for what matters most to you. That's why I stand for the plan, and I kneel at the cross. For the friends I have loved and lost, and that's me. Oh, he just...